Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Well, I'm going to start with the big news of the day. Uh, an appellate court has ruled that, uh, yeah, you know, on that whole immunity thing. Uh, no, Donald Trump doesn't doesn't get immunity from uh, prosecution. Donald Trump is a regular citizen, just like the rest of us, and is uh, subject to the rule of law, just like the rest of us. It was a three judge panel. Their ruling was unanimous. And I'm no lawyer, but from what I've read about it today. The people who know more about these things than I do are speculating that this decision is so clear and so well-reasoned and so open and shut and so unanimous that it is possible the Supreme Court will decline to take the matter up. They can do that. I mean, you know, we all know Donald Trump because he lost. Whenever he loses, he takes whatever it is to the next court. You know, he keeps basically court shopping and judge shopping on the off chance that somebody will rule in his favor. There is little question that Donald Trump will appeal this because this is um, this would make his life so much easier if people just said you couldn't prosecute him. Oh, my God. That's why when it came to the D.C. trial, you know, that's the one on the January 6th charges. Jack Smith made um, a filing that was rejected by the Supreme Court. But the filing was in this matter of whether or not he gets immunity. Let's just take it right to the Supreme Court because we know that's where it's going to end up. So rather than wasting our time going up the chain of command uh, where I'm convinced he's going to lose every time and we're going to end up at the Supreme Court anyway. Let's just go right to the Supreme Court right now. And uh, Donald Trump's lawyers, of course, think about it. They didn't want that to happen because the whole point of something like this is to delay, to delay. Donald Trump is desperate to delay these trials as best he can till after the election. Because remember, two of the big cases against him are federal brought by the Department of Justice. And if he's the president, he can throw those out the window. And that's what he plans to do. So in this D.C. case, he is going to do everything in his power to drag this out. Which is what Jack Smith saw coming. And Jack Smith, you know, this was originally supposed to go to trial in March next month. It has uh, been taken off the judge's docket. The judge, it's no longer on the judge's calendar for March until this whole immunity issue gets resolved. So what happens now? Well, Donald Trump and his lawyers go to the Supreme Court and they say, you should rule on this. And here's where it gets interesting. Somebody like Clarence Thomas, who will go to his grave defending everything Trump does. Thank you, Ginny. You know, Clarence doesn't want his wife embarrassed. Clarence Thomas would probably be willing to hear this case, knowing full well that even if it's a loser for Donald Trump, it could be a winner in that it gives him another month, two months, three months of delay 
delay, delay, delay. I don't want this trial to take place before the election. But the appeals court, oh, was very clear. It was like, you know, no, no. This guy is an American, just like every other American. And what he did in his past life doesn't affect his ability to face the consequences of the law. Unanimous decision by the three appeals court judges. That, for those Supreme Court judges that don't want to take on this case, because whether, no matter how they decide, it is potentially a loser for them. And, you know, they're supposed to be, the reason they're appointed for life is because it's supposed to put them above the fray. But if you don't think they don't pay attention to what people are saying about the court and writing about the court, let's face it, it would be human nature. And when the Supreme Court starts to get a lot of criticism, they react to it. They had said for years there's no need for us to have a code of ethics. And all of a sudden, more and more people are talking about how corrupt they are and how partisan they are and how they're just hacks. And all of a sudden, they write up a code of ethics. Now, it's tepid and virtually unenforceable, but it's the first time in the history of the Supreme Court they even went that far. So they're paying attention. And even the ones who feel they owe their seat to Donald Trump, Gorsuch, I'm looking at you, may just want to avoid this whole mess. You know? The appeals court has potentially given them the cover to do that. We'll see. But, um, you know, there's, if they do take on this case and rule on it, nobody's going to be happy with them. If they rule that indeed he doesn't have immunity and has to face trial like, you know, an ordinary person, you think they don't know how MAGA is going to react to that? You think they don't know that potentially they're putting their families in danger? But on the other hand, if what the appeals court ruled and what they wrote on their decision is so clear and so obvious, then do they rule for Donald Trump and further undermine their own reputation as being nothing but partisan hacks? This is a lose-lose for the Supreme Court. And I think, even though there will be people who aren't happy, I think the smartest thing they can do is duck this. They don't have to take, not only do they not have to, they don't take all the people, all the cases that are brought before them. You know, everybody thinks, well, I'm just going to take this all the way up to the Supreme Court. And there's a lot of those kind of everybody's. And they say no to more than they say yes to. But um, the appeals court, in no uncertain terms, in a unanimous decision, said no. No immunity. Nope, nope, nope. You uh, don't like our decision? Appeal it to the Supreme Court and we'll see what they do. Okay, that's one big thing. 
Um, the other big thing is um, the death of Toby Keith, which, um, you know, I was reading, I actually read about Toby Keith's death in The Bulwark. Charlie Sykes was like, you know, oh, what a day today. You know, the, the king of England has cancer and Toby Keith is dead. And I was like, what? No, Toby Keith isn't dead. What are you talking about, Charlie Sykes? And, um, you know, because I thought, you know, I personally, I'm not a big country music fan, but I know Toby Keith. He's one of those names that transcends just fame within the country music circle. And I was thinking to myself, oh, somebody as famous as that, it's got to be like all over social media. It's got to be front page. And I... So I went to threads and I couldn't find, I'm scrolling back and scrolling back. I couldn't find anything. Went to the front page of the Washington Post and I couldn't find anything. Now, today, um, on, um, I just was rechecking the Washington Post. And if you scroll down, they do have a very brief obit for Toby Keith. 62 years old. Uh, the family... Didn't give a cause of death, but 18 months ago, he announced that he had been undergoing treatment for stomach cancer. You know, and he he did an interview, I I can't remember who it was with, and he was like, you know, I have good days and bad days. On the good days, I'm ready to go, and on the bad days, not so much. Uh, There was also a link to um, some posts from Forbes Forbes magazine, I didn't realize this, but in addition to being an extremely popular music artist, he was a hell of a businessman. Some people used to say that he was the wealthiest of all the country music stars because he went into other businesses. He had a string of restaurants. Uh, I was reminded uh, earlier today that for a while he opened one in Rosemont, remember? Toby Keith's restaurant in Rosemont, apparently it, it didn't last. It ended up closing up, but he didn't just live off of his music. He was, um, he diversified and was very, very wealthy. I don't know how much money he had when he died, but one of the articles I found said that at one time it was estimated that his wealth might be $500 million. Holy crap, half a billion dollars. So I don't understand why his death is not getting more airplay. Um, 62 years old, way too young. You know, if we ever get a handle on cancer... And sadly... For those of you who haven't yet joined the Cancer Club, you know, the older you get, you may have never had cancer your whole life, but the older you get, the more susceptible. You know, as we get older, our immune systems don't uh, chug along quite the same way they did before. And a lot of people believe that there's a, a real tie, that that's why immunotherapy in some people has proven very effective in, um, in fighting cancer. Because some people believe that it is that we produce the occasional cancer cell throughout our life, but our immune system eats them up, gets rid of them, kills them, does away with them, until maybe our immune system 
doesn't work at 100% anymore, and some of them get through, and that's all it takes. Also was just reading in New York Magazine, um, Cecile Richards, the woman who led Planned Parenthood for so long and is still fighting the fight when it comes to abortion, the daughter of one of the last, if not the last, Democratic Texas governor, Ann Richards, uh, was diagnosed six months ago with brain cancer. She is um, undergoing, she went underwent surgery, and um, she's in a clinical trial now for some experimental therapy. But, you know, glioblastoma is a difficult, difficult cancer. If I am not mistaken, that's what took Tim Weigel and um, Gene Siskel. I know they both died of brain cancer. So, eh, oh, it's getting dark here. Let's let's um, wrap up this conversation for now. Except to say, she's in a clinical trial. I'm sorry, nothing worked out for Toby Keith. Um, please. Get all of your screenings. I know it's sometimes scary. It's sometimes very scary to get a cancer screening. But I'm telling you that when you get the news, you don't have anything. Or when you get the news that they found something, but it's in its early stages, you will get down on your knees and thank whatever gods you believe in that they caught it early. So that is my little PSA. Uh, to get out there and get those tests. Don't be afraid. It's like for a long time I was afraid to make a will. Somehow I was I was thinking that if I wrote a will that somehow that meant I was going to die. Like, like, like I wasn't going to die otherwise. What was I thinking? It was this real visceral fear. And then I sat down with a lawyer, wrote out my first will. And you know what I felt afterwards? I felt great. I felt like a weight had been taken off my shoulders. I don't know. People are weird. <laughs> um, oh, yes. And let's talk about what is going on in the Senate and the House with this, with this bill um, that the Senate negotiated that has uh, money and changes for the border. Aid for Israel, Indo-Pacific aid, read aid for Taiwan, and aid for Ukraine. The Republicans, the Republicans and the and Kristen Sinema and Independent and Democrats, they worked so hard on it. They came to an agreement. And now, well, first of all, Mike Johnson, who got the word from Donald Trump that he didn't want any kind of um, border measures being enacted, because he wanted to be able to um, point the finger at Biden and say you're not doing anything. Donald Trump is, by the way, denying that. But, you know, he, he absolutely I mean, he said it publicly. He said publicly first he was going to kill it. And now because there is all this political backlash, like Republicans can't get anything done. Now, he's like, oh, I, I never said that. I never said that when he did. So Mike Johnson was the first one to say um, well, yeah, this is what we wanted, but this version is really bad. It's not that we don't still want this. It's just this is a really bad bill. 
you know, this particular bill is bad. If it were a different bill, another bill, then maybe things would be different. But it's this bill and we don't really like this bill. He described it as dead on arrival. He said it hasn't come to the House yet, but even if it gets voted on in the Senate and passed, it is dead on arrival in the House. Now, now apparently, it's dead on arrival in the Senate. The senators have gotten the word that Donald Trump doesn't want this. And senators who were willing to support it before are now pulling their support. Mitch McConnell this morning came out and said that he just doesn't see any chance for this bill to get passed. Which means that we are putting Ukraine at risk. Yes, right now the European Union is trying to make up for what we are apparently incapable of doing when it comes to aid to Ukraine. And maybe Vladimir Putin was right. Maybe all he has to do is wait long enough. And um, the West will crumble, that the West can't hold it together. That's, by all accounts, (sighs) what has been going on, that Putin doesn't need a flat-out win. He just needs not to lose. Because sooner or later, sooner or later, the West will crumble. And it is beginning to look like he knows us better than we know ourselves. And isn't that sad? Mitch McConnell today um, apparently telling Republican senators, don't even vote. Don't even vote for moving this bill from the committee to the floor because he knows it's not going to pass and he knows senators are going to embarrass themselves and be asked about it later when some of them hit the campaign trail. And he's trying to avoid that. So if they can... keep it from coming to the Senate floor, then they don't have to go on record as having voted against it. What a mess. What an absolute embarrassing mess. Um, Over the weekend, the leader of the Democrats in the House, Hakeem Jeffries, sat down on uh, ABC for their This Week show. They talked about the border. Clearly, he could see the writing on the wall. Listen to this. House Republicans at this point are wholly owned subsidiaries of Donald Trump. They're not working to find real solutions for the American people. They are following orders from the former president. That's the height of irresponsibility. That's what the American people dislike about Washington, D.C. at this moment. Among other things. Um, But at least the Democrats are showing some spine here. Uh, President Biden has come out and said 
this bill is failing because of Donald Trump. See, this, you know, Donald Trump is a street fighter and he usually has good instincts. Maybe he thought if he called Republican senators and told them to vote against this, maybe he thought that they would all be quiet about it, but they haven't been. It has become an embarrassing story. And instead of an issue to use against Joe Biden, oh, Biden hasn't done anything on the border. He's now given Joe Biden an issue to use against him. Thank you, Donald Trump. Thank you for that. You have so much surface support from Republicans who really would love to see you tanked. (laughs) Thank you for that. And now, because he has no relationship at all with the truth, you're going to see quotes from Donald Trump where he says he didn't have anything to do with anything. Uh, It's not his fault this vote isn't happening. He hasn't talked to anybody. He hasn't told anybody not to vote because it is blowing up in his face. It is absolutely blowing up in his face. And Joe Biden is pouncing on it. Pouncing on it. I think he thought that this would be one issue that would be an evergreen for him. No matter what, because even Fox News, (laughs) the economy is doing so well and has been doing so well for so long. Even Fox News has finally come around to say that Joe Biden has done great things with the economy. Larry Kudlow, one of their reporters, was like, hey, you know, he was on Fox. He was like, you know, you might this night might not be what you expect. It might not even be what you want to hear. But the numbers don't lie. The economy's doing great. I mean, we've had month after month after month after month after month of job growth. We've had month after month after month after month of decreasing inflation. You know, how long ago was it that everybody was wringing their hands that there was going to be this major recession? Guess what? Never happened. It didn't happen. Fox News has now come around to the point where when they talk about the economy... They say the economy is great. The economy is great. That is not going to be one of the issues that Republicans can come after Democrats with in 2024. The economy has been doing so well for so long that it is actually now trickling down into the consciousness of the people who most don't want it to be so. So what else? We don't have the economy. Let's see. We don't have the economy. Uh, We don't have inflation. Um, Shoot. How about immigration? Yeah, the border. Oh, wait. Uh, We demanded we demanded a border bill. And oh, Democrats agreed. And oh, crap. Quick, don't vote for it. Don't vote for it. Give us this one last issue. That only works if it's done behind closed doors and nobody ever finds out that that's the plan, that that they're actually using it to trick voters. Let's not agree to vote for anything, and then we will blame Biden for the fact that nothing's been done. It's brilliant. But it only works if people don't know it's happening. And we do. And we're talking about it. And we're going to make sure as many people as need to know about it know about it.
Try again, Donald Trump. And also, uh, this I thought this was really interesting. Um, you know, uh, yesterday, um, when I was talking to, or maybe it was the end of last week, anyway, I was talking to a um, strategist, a political strategist. Everybody realizes that Donald Trump leads Nikki Haley in South Carolina and that he's going to beat her, but... The one strategist I talked to said that if she can pull 40 to 45 percent of the vote in South Carolina, that will probably be enough for her to continue to fundraise. And as long as she's got the money, she's going to stay in the race. Ah, isn't it interesting? Let's take a break and get back to everything right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820. Of those good jobs numbers, we're going to be speaking now to David Madland, who's a senior fellow and senior advisor for the American Worker Project at the Center for American Progress. David, how are you today? I'm doing well, Joan. Thanks for having me. Um, I was just talking about um, issues that uh, Donald Trump can and cannot use against Joe Biden, and I think, at least so far, uh, the jobs numbers and the economy has pretty much uh, been taken out of his quiver uh, of arrows to use against Joe Biden because even Fox News has been talking about great jobs numbers, uh, things looking really good. Looks like uh, I predicted a recession. I have to say I was wrong. Um, um, and a big part of this is is labor and people having jobs and people getting jobs who haven't had jobs for a while. And I think it's really important, if you don't mind, if we could start by taking a look back, because Donald Trump is trying very hard to rewrite history about how the economy was so great, the deficit was so low, and so many jobs were created during his administration. What was the reality of that, David? Well, there certainly was some good news, you know, during some periods of uh, President Trump. You know, there were a couple of years where uh, unemployment was quite low um, and wages were growing. But then we had the pandemic and the recession there. And so we lost hundreds of thousands of, of jobs. And when you then look at the whole sort of period that he presided over, the end results weren't that good. Um, and you contrast that. And you also, the other thing was sort of when you look at Donald Trump, is he took over an economy from President Obama that was doing quite well. Um, and then he handed to President Biden an economy that was doing quite poorly. Biden comes in, you know, in the midst of the recession for the, from the pandemic, and he starts with major pr- proposals to um, help people out weather the storm, but also making major investments that are going to create jobs in the future. And you can see, you know, the amount of jobs he's been created is just is amazing. Hundreds of thousands each month, putting us well on above where we were uh, before the pandemic. Our growth rates are higher than before, higher than pretty much any other country right now. We just have recovered so much better than anywhere else. It's, it's pretty remarkable. You know, David, sometimes I use phrases or I talk about something so often that I think I really have a grasp of the issue. But you know, I want to really back up and I want you to kind of give me a tutorial here. Jobs creation. What do 
policies or governments do so that jobs are created? How does that process work? <laughs> well, you know, there's a big debate. And I think the uh, the debate, what President Biden is arguing what is and what he's been doing and, and the results, I think, show that this is a good theory of how you how politicians can help grow the economy. So he's made some major investments to try to spur private investments. He's made investments in standard infrastructure like roads and bridges. But he's also uh, created sort of these subsidies to encourage his private businesses to invest in things like electric vehicles and solar and the like. And so he's kind of trying to crowd in private investment using public investment as as a way to get private uh, businesses to make investments and create jobs. He's also supported consumer demand. So there's this growing consumer demand. So workers' wages are growing. They are more likely to be, they have, you know, unions and he's been supporting unions. And so they can negotiate for higher wages. And so this is this sort of theory that you're, that you're, creating the demand that's going to cause businesses to invest. And that's in stark contrast with the trickle-down theory that Republicans, uh, including Donald Trump, were pushing, where you cut taxes and regulations on business, and that will spur, uh, you know, businesses to invest. And instead, what, you know, cutting taxes on business does is cause them their profits to go up, and they don't invest that money. And so mm-hmm. you're seeing, like right now, record investments in uh, manufacturing construction. They're building new plants. And, and that's the kind of things that's being spurred by what I think is the more truer and more effective theory of how policies can help spur growth. There was, um, I'm trying to remember what town it was. There was a, a, a town recently that Joe Biden was about to visit where um, the, ho- I believe it was the hotel workers were contemplating a strike. And it was rumored that when Biden came to town, if indeed they were on strike, he was going to walk a picket line with them. And suddenly, right before he came to town, uh, the whole uh, issue was settled and there was a new contract. And some people speculated that uh, nobody wanted that those that those on the other side of the table did not want to see the president um, walking a picket line with the people they were negotiating with. Is does the president have that kind of power when he walked the picket line with the UAW? Was that really did he really bring sort of the bully pulpit to bear there? Well, the bully pulpit is one of the most powerful weapons that uh, any president has. They can't directly change policy. You know, the Congress, what they have is they bring attention and agenda to an issue. And President Biden has really put unions front and center. And then he's gone out on, for example, you know, on the picket line with the workers at UAW, which is the first president that we know of to have gone directly to, you know, support a strike. The, how much that changes the behavior of businesses, I, my hunch is a fair amount. Um, certainly the workers, you know, the workers on their own are a major source of power. But when they have politicians behind them, I think it emboldens and empowers those workers to stand firm. But it also puts some additional pressure on companies 
to settle. And there also are possibly private discussions going on behind the scenes. And so when, when I see, you know, President Biden, he does the public facing things, but also he's been pushing policies that support uh, union unionization efforts. There was this big story, uh, you know, now we're getting on six plus months ago where uh, an electric vehicle bus electric vehicle facility in Georgia was trying to unionize. And one of the policies that Biden had passed with uh, said that the companies had to report whether they were union busting or not. And the um, you know, the union organizers said, oh, well, we felt that put a little bit of pressure on the company to make them less likely to crush our organizing effort. And one of the, you know, one of the first successful uh, big electric vehicle organizing campaigns was pushed in part by those policies. So I think it's this public facing work, but also the policies behind it. One thing I've seen President Biden do is get out there and support Union workers, union workers who are already unionized, um, would it be counterproductive for him? Like everybody's always writing about Tesla and how, you know, the Swedish dock workers don't want to unload Teslas because Sweden is pretty much a unionized country. And Elon Musk has repeatedly refused efforts to unionize Tesla. Would it be would it be useful would it be productive for um, President Biden, say, to be supporting those workers? Or is that simply not worth the potential blowback? Are you asking whether uh, President Biden should be supporting unionized workers as well as workers or, who are should, trying should, to form? President Biden go a step further. He's supporting unionized workers. Should he support workers in those areas who have been trying to unionize but unsuccessfully? Oh, he's doing all of it. It's ama- I mean, it's really amazing. We talked about the, un- the direct unionized workers, but from you know Amazon and Starbucks, he's gone on public record saying, you know, if these workers should unionize, uh, which is remar- even as they're trying to form a union, which is really remarkable. He's so he's he's doing kind of all of the above, and I I really think this gets to the, the question you asked about his view and his theory about how public policy creates jobs and not just any jobs, but creates good jobs. And we've had decades and decades of declining union membership. And that's meant that wages have largely stagnated because workers don't have enough power to negotiate with work with their companies at the same time that corporate profits are near record highs. That means that businesses haven't had uh, as much of a reason to invest because their consumer demand isn't growing. Instead, they're they're just you know siphoning money off into profits and CEO salaries. And his view is these workers are going to have a better job and a better life if they can unionize. But also, it's going to be good for the whole country because that's going to foster this kind of virtuous cycle of uh, you know in consumer demand encouraging uh, additional business investment. Um, And I also want to add to what I said earlier, Um, Andy Miles, uh, David, is the person uh, back at the studio, and he he functions as my better brain. And he said I was referring to the Nevada culinary union workers. That was the situation where President Biden was going to visit Nevada. And uh, all of a sudden there was an agreement before he, he showed up. Thank you for that, Andy. See, it takes two brains to do this show, David. 
Um, it sure I, also, does. I want to uh, talk about one of your books. Well, David's written a couple of books. One is called Reunion, How Bold Labor Reforms Can Repair, Revitalize and Reunite the United States. And the other one is called Hollowed Out, Why the Economy Doesn't Work Without a Strong Middle Class. That's a line that I have been repeating for God knows how long on this show. But I'd like your take on why the economy doesn't work without a strong middle class. Well, uh, you know, I, I've definitely heard heard you and appreciate you uh, highlighting the, the reasons the strong middle class matters. And, you know, I talked about one of them, this consumer, de- the stronger consumer demand. But you also have um, just sort of the quality of government policies. When the inequality is incredibly high and the rich have more money, they're able to uh, pervert government so that it just serves their interests and not all of the, the public's interests, which leads to policies that help the rich and don't foster growth. It's like the tax cuts for the rich versus the investments in uh, jobs and manufacturing and the like. So it's the in, in, you know stronger consumer demand. It's the uh, better governance. There's also a couple of sort of um, harder to perceive, but I think once you, when they tell it, you'll sort of, you know, can follow along. We have, when society has a stronger middle class, there's greater trust between people. They feel like people are more similar to them. And that makes doing business easier. You're less likely to sort of lawyer up in your, in your business environment. You're willing to take a more risk and do, and do things with other people. And that's this sort of fosters this, this, more uh, growth-oriented uh, environments. And the last is when we have a stronger middle class, more people are able to rise up and take advantage, full advantage of their talents. But when we have really high inequality, you, you kind of only the, the wealthy are able to sort of perpetuate and take advantage of all the things. But all people can and can from all walks of life when we have a stronger middle class can um, demonstrate their talents and contribute to the economy and their foot to their fullest extent. So we're, we don't leave out as many people. And so all of those I think are, you know, are why we've, uh, the, the U S economy has not done that well over recent decades as we've had uh, strong inequality, but it's part of why I think we are seeing, uh, you know, President Biden really focusing on rebuilding the middle class because again, this isn't it's it's good for the, the people who are going to be brought into the middle class, but it also creates this virtuous cycle where we contribute to our future growth. Mm-hmm. I also think that a strong middle class contributes to political stability. Uh, we've seen it happen in other countries time after time when um, there becomes this small ultra wealthy class. There is virtually no middle class, and then there is a very large poor class. And guess what happens over time? The people in that bottom rung get really teed off, and um, and that's when things can get really ugly uh, politically. And I th- I think that some of the support uh, that Donald Trump has garnered comes from people who are very frustrated with their lot in life. And rather than focus on the rich people who didn't trickle down what we were promised they would trickle down, you know, I think Trump has taken that feeling and he's focused it on the other. Well, you know, your life didn't work out the way you wanted it to because of all those immigrants. 
you know, because of all those other people who were taking your opportunities with that, you know, affirmative action and stuff like that. I think it is a twisted version of a real strong discontent with income inequality, too. Um, I also want to touch on your uh, your other book, Reunion, um, how bold labor reforms can repair, revitalize and reunite the United States. That's the part that I believe will also happen with a strong middle class as we'll come together. What kind of labor reforms um, do, would you like to see happen? I mean, we've talked about some things that Joe Biden is doing right now to bring this about. What more could or should we do? Well, you know, as, I, as you noted, President Biden is doing a fair amount, but unfortunately, mm. the sort of deck is stacked so much against workers who want to form unions that there is a whole lot more that needs to be done. The, the first thing that we need to do is workers need to have really strong rights to be able to form unions, and there need to be real penalties for companies that break the law and violate workers' rights. And that is clearly not the case now. Companies that, um, you know, fi- illegally fire a worker for forming a union, there's no financial penalty. At most, they have to pay, uh, put up a, so- a sign and then pay some back pay to a worker. The um, so the first is these strong rights that workers or workers can actually strike. They can actually form unions and they can actually collectively bargain. But the second, I think we also need to um, have policies that actively encourage workers to form unions because there's this, you know, even if if there's always the incentive for companies to make it hard for workers to form unions, even if they, you know, the law protects it, the company will sort of find ways to dis- discourage it. Um, and and we want and the thing is the other the other thing is that all of society benefits from when workers are in unions. So it's not just enough to say, hey, you could join a union. But I think we want to encourage it. And, and I think of things like um, improving our apprenticeship programs, which are usually labor management partnerships that get workers into a union and then into a good job uh, through some through training, I think we can dramatically ramp up those kinds of policies that will so encourage more people to join a union in that manner. And then the last thing I think we need to do is improve and expand the way we bargain collectively. Right now, most bargaining occurs just worksite by worksite or a little portion of, of a worksite. And the challenge with that because I think we could also add on this different type of bargaining called sectoral bargaining or broader based bargaining where sort of all workers in an industry or region are, are, are bargaining. And that does several things. First, it covers a lot more workers with the benefits of a union contract. And that's particularly important for those that are sort of hardest to cover that typically they work for the, you know, the gig workers, the small or they work for the smallest employers. It also changes the incentives for companies because they're going to, instead of fighting unions so hard, they are all going to have to pay the same rate for this, the same job. And so they're a little bit less inclined to fight unions, which creates um, some of the additional benefits of unions is it can foster uh, a good feedback between workers and employers so that that there's this way forward that here's a, here's a common goal. So we've negotiated wages, and now we're going to figure out how to make our company do as well as possible. I've often thought about 
what it is that makes companies, many companies, so averse to unions. And yes, you know, there's the obvious, well, you know, unionized workers will demand better pay. But I think it's more than that. It almost seems like it's this fear that they will somehow lose control, that they will be dictated to as to how their business is going to be run by a, another entity. Do you think that that's valid? Well, you know, there's a, thing, a quote from a former head of Walmart where he says to what, basically what you, what you described, that we like driving the bus and we're, we're not going to give the steering wheel to anyone else. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's this this fear that um, pervades too many companies. But I want to highlight that it's it's a choice that companies are making. And I think it's mostly sh- short-sighted and um, has caused a lot of the problems we see in the country, as we mentioned, from you know, the stagnating wages, the rising inequality, but also the political instability that has come with that. And so we see some companies, even like a big one like Microsoft recently has said they're going to be neutral in all organizing campaigns. They're not going to fight unions, but they're like, if workers want them, they can, they can do it, and we're going to allow it. Uh, and so there are some companies that have said, you know what, our, our best interest is to actually um, want workers who want to be here, that there's, you know, especially right now where there's tighter labor markets because there's so many jobs in the economy, they are saying their competitive advantage is being a place that everyone wants to come and they feel comfortable forming a union without threat. Mm-hmm. Do you think that idea of taking a neutral stance uh, will spread or is it a one-off? <laughs> Well, the, you know, there is there it is spreading, but it's very slightly. There's been you know, I did a little research, and it's a very slight increase in the past couple of years of the number of companies that have uh, been voluntarily neutral in these campaigns. It's still unfortunately a, a drop in the bucket, and that's why the laws need to change. That the laws need to you know give workers the big strong rights and encourage workers to join unions and promote. Uh, broader-based bargaining. The, we're still a ways away. The President Biden, as we, you know, we're discussing here, has been a real champion. The, unfortunately, you know, as all your listeners know, getting anything through the Senate um, is very tough, especially uh, you know, with the filibuster with two-thirds majority required. So we've got to figure out path to that. But at the same time, and this is where I, I think you were highlighting this Trump versus Biden difference is it's important is so there's this chance if president biden wins and the senate goes democrat you know remains democratic and has a big majority uh, and the house does as well that we could get real labor law reforms on the flip side if donald trump wins he says said for example he supports right to work 100 percent, and there's a big effort to promote uh right to work you know and it has a majority of republicans in the house and the senate support it and so that's the flip side. That could be even worse than things are today. Uh, and and so I I'm both optimistic because the public is more and more supportive of unions than they've been almost ever. We have about two thirds to seventy percent of the public saying they support unions, want them stronger, think it's a good thing. Half of workers would like to join unions, and these are so these are really high numbers of support for unions and. 
hopefully politicians listen more than they have. But uh, there's a th- there's a possibility that if the wrong people get get in power, that it could be even harder for workers trying to form unions. David, it was very publicly announced that recently Donald Trump had what they're describing as a very cordial sit-down meeting with the Teamsters. Do you think he happened to mention in that meeting, um, do you think he reiterated his stance that the whole country should be right to work when he was sitting down across the table from the Teamsters? I'm just curious. No, what do you I, think? I, 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 no, I, I don't think at all. I think he would you know, try to hide and obfuscate his positions and just say, trust me, I'll... I'll I'll do the work and I'll help you. And I think, you know, Donald Trump's record on labor issues, yeah, there's the right to work, but there's his general position. You know, that you during the UAW strike, he said the workers were picketing for the weren't picketing for the right thing and that they should just endorse him rather than than uh, you know, continue to do what they were doing. Instead, the workers stood up and said, "We're going to continue our strike." And Joe Biden came out and supported them. And so these workers were able to get what Donald Trump wasn't able to deliver. They got a factory reopened, for example, Belvedere, uh, Illinois, for in Stellantis plant. You contrast that with this Lordstown GM plant that Donald Trump was, was – so this was a plant that was being closed when Donald Trump was president. He said, oh, workers, don't sell your house. I got this. I'll fix it. Instead, he didn't. And then he blamed the union, the local union, for the problem. So, um, no, there's no way Donald Trump actually wants to talk about his record on on labor issues. He wants to say, trust me. Uh, but I think, you know, we have we had four years of his record that I don't think we really want to um, return to on, on, you know, especially union issues. And just there's a you know, couple more things here to con- contrast that I can, you know, the talk about there's. There's support for whether you support Davis-Bacon and prevailing wage laws, which ensure that construction workers on government-subsidized contracts get union rates, um, but, you know, hasn't supported voted those. The people he appointed when, when Donald Trump was president, the people he appointed were basically union busters. The mm-hmm. first yeah. uh, Department of Labor, you know, like so in stark contrast, again, with, with Joe Biden, his his Department of Labor, Joe Biden's Department of Labor secretary, first secretary, was a former union leader. Mm-hmm. Just sharp, sharp contrast. So I, Donald Trump does not want to have that discussion about actual records on uh, labor policy. Oh, I don't think Donald Trump wants to have any real substantive discussion about anything, anywhere, anytime. I think he does his best work when um, all he's doing is speaking at, at rallies because then, you know, he doesn't have to um, he doesn't have to answer any tough questions. He doesn't have to defend any of the lies that he's told. I mean, I don't think he's going to assuming he is the presumptive Republican nominee. I don't think he's going to agree to debate Joe Biden. I don't think this guy wants to be on the record. <laughs> well, um, you, you might be right. But the thing is, as you know, Donald Trump is on the record. He's already yeah. on the record on so many things. And and so fake news, uh, you know, David, fake you, news. Probably deep <laughs> Part of what you're doing is highlighting the the record and the real truth. The act, you know, we have actual evidence here, and the more and more we can discuss what President Bi- you know Biden has done for workers and for union, you know, especially unionized workers, in contrast that with what 
President Trump did for workers. Um, you know, the, you mentioned the Teamsters. Just another thing that is so big so that the Teamsters, when they're meeting, you know, President Biden, the, the Teamsters pension plan was the biggest, pen, you know, where most of the workers are in a pension plan was about to collapse and retirees were going to see their benefits cut by about 60 percent. Biden gets a bill passed to shore up their pension plan. Uh, and so I think, you know, the, as much as it's strange to see the, you know, or some might criticize the teachers of having this discussion with Donald Trump, I think at some level it's good to have this opportunity to contrast records and say who actually really delivered for their, their union members. And I think the record is pretty clear. Uh, David Madland is the senior fellow and senior advisor for the American Worker Project at the Center for American Progress. His books are Reunion and Hollowed Out. David, thank you for the discussion. So much fun. Oh, it was a pleasure. We are going to take a break for news. We'll be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live. Celebrating our power to bring about change. Local. Everybody has to work together. And progressive. I think you get the idea. On WCPT 820. As we sail into all of the 2024 elections, those taking place this spring and those taking place a little bit later in the year, it's going to be important not only to focus on the players and the issues, but it is going to be more important than ever before to know who you can trust, to be able to think critically about the information you're being given, who, who it's coming from, um, who are the powers behind them, and what, if any, points of view or biases do you have to be concerned with. Another area of concern is that um, even though this is a really important year, it seems like the number of sources for us to get this really critical information, especially information having to do with our own towns and our own state, it just seems like those sources are disappearing on a daily basis. Um, Longtime local newsman uh, David Lehman and I have talked about this uh, before, and we decided that it was worth a discussion here on the radio to maybe give you a little bit of background of you know where where this is coming from, where it's been, how it's how it started. Uh, David Lehman joins me now. How are you, David? Hi, Joan. Good to talk to you again. Uh, nice to be back, having been with you just last week talking about this. Really, I think a very, very critical issue, and it comes at a time, as you pointed out, when you really do need to have solid uh, forms of uh, tested communication and uh, fact-checking and so on, which we're drifting farther and farther away from as a result of so many people on the Internet. I mean, the Internet provides us so many access access points to um, information. Unfortunately, a lot of that uh, information is uh, is false. I mean, just lies. But they're lies that people pass on because they can. They get a following and all of that. And then when the traditional media uh, calls attention to it and says, you know, that may have been interesting reading, but it's stable. It's absolutely false. And then people say, well, that's just the liberal, you know, mainstream media fighting for their lives. They don't want to have anybody else trying to 
you know, uh, horn in on their on their 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 uh, information gathering and information dissemination, and uh, and that's that's really you know that's just part of the problem, but that's also a big part of the problem. In fact, this whole problem of the decline of the news media is really really huge. And, and somebody I, I've spent three decades, uh, as you know, um, as a reporter, news anchor in major markets. Early on, in smaller markets, uh, which is which was traditionally the way you did it, and uh, and I've spent time uh, in, in corporate communications. You've done that as well, as I recall. Mm-hmm. And and quite honestly, I've said this, <laughs> and I said this quite carefully when I was in the corporate communications business, when I'd be preparing people to talk to the media. I would tell them, I said, you know, unfortunately, or fortunately for you, you folks in business. Uh, there's never been a better time to be able to get out there and spin stuff that just isn't true. Now, I would never promote that, by the way. But, uh, it, you know, now is, is the best time if you're if you're a, a crooked politician. There are very few watchdogs out there. And most of the time, uh, television and newspapers will focus on, on uh, organizations or government, really, that uh, don't buy advertising. And so we can get into that uh, a little bit as well. But, you know, the decline of local news in the U.S. has really been speeding up. It just keeps getting worse. A couple of statistics that the audience might find interesting. The country has lost one-third of its newspapers since 2005, and two-thirds of its newspaper journalists since 2005. Think about that. Newspapers are dying, and, and the, the average of, of three newspapers closing every week in just the past year, and most publications are just leaving their coverage areas, in many cases, without local news. That Now it's really referred to, it's got a name, they're called News Deserts. And, uh, and you know, the newspaper towns, they used to have a couple of major newspapers in Chicago, but you know, at one time, you know, uh, big cities used to have five, four, five, six major newspapers competing. They're now down to, to one or two. St. Louis, where I grew up, there was a St. Louis Post-Dispatch and the St. Louis Globe Democrat. The Globe Democrat's been gone for years. It's a one-newspaper town, and yet it's in, in the top 25 markets. So, you know, it's just, to me as a journalist, it just is just very, very sad, and I think the 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 repercussions on this are absolutely shocking and uh, the whole idea about the threat to democracy is real it is i i used to kind of think ah oh, that's a little bit of an overstatement boy i'll tell you what it was actually an understatement you know it's interesting in um this month's washington monthly i i interviewed philip longman uh and his uh, article was how fighting monopoly can save journalism, and um, I don't. I, I have a very uh, cursory following of business news. I have enough to do with politics, but his point was that um, there's a Department of Justice suit against Google, and his argument is without a lot of attention. Basically, Google, you know, people are saying, well, you know, this 
like the Chicago Tribune, you know, if only they had a better digital site, you know, they could transition to the next generation. And he said, but it's like the deck is stacked against all these people because the way Google structured things, they have basically sucked up the vast majority of any kind of digital ads, even digital ads. He explained it to me. And again, not a businesswoman. Uh, but there's yeah. um Google has put a mechanism in place where even ads that don't run on Google products, they still get a cut of those. And he said it's not that, you know, the local news organizations who tried to develop these digital arms when the print advertising dried up, it's like they didn't have a chance because of this monopoly. And he said that there's a DOJ lawsuit now that is going to address just this issue. And he said, you know, whether it succeeds or not, it might pressure Google into changing uh, their business model and give some of these outlets uh, that are starved for advertising dollars an actual chance to compete. I was completely ignorant of that particular side of this equation, you know, because I would always think in terms of, well, you know, younger people, short attention spans, you know, they don't want to read a newspaper, that maybe it was just um, an evolution. But I, it, it seems to be more than that. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think it's a confluence of, of a lot of things happening at one time. And, and I know I run the risk of sounding like somebody who's older, just looking back and condemning anything. <laughs> well, that's, that's who uh, we are. Let's embrace yeah, it. Well, well, I mean, you know, and, you know, that's also part of the wisdom of being older. I mean, you know, <laughs> uh, you can be you can be sort of an old codger, quote unquote. I don't consider myself an old codger, but my birth date uh, probably would uh, tell the truth on me. But, uh, you know, there are a lot of things that have happened here uh, in a relatively short period of time. I'm, I'm talking about the last 40 years. If you think about it, uh, I have two daughters. Both are uh, one is uh, 27 and one is 28. Um, one, one is an entrepreneur. She's a jewelry designer, has her own own business. Uh, you know, it's really kind of new, but she's been doing it for five years. My other daughter is in high tech in, in Amsterdam. These two have no concept of what's going on internationally or nationally. They 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 do see headlines on 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 their phones and and on their computers, but there's no depth to it. And when I sit and talk to them, I mean, they all they all kind of glaze over. Even when I'm talking to them about Donald Trump, which actually is kind of a fascinating story or stories, really, of, of all that he is accused of. And I can tell about. Two minutes into the conversation, they're they're kind of glazed over and all of that. There there isn't that care, and I say that just because I see this in my own personal life with my yeah. own daughters. Oh no, I mean the same smart, the same is good. true with with my kids, and it's yeah. not. It's not some people are just politically averse. My kids are not politically averse. I mean, they were, you know, my son, at least, was a Bernie bro at one point. But (laughs) but the amount of information that they get or that they even care to look for is shockingly little to me, to me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that goes back to the next point that I was going to make. Less than a third and maybe more like 20% of the students graduating from high school 
at elementary school as well have had any civics or government training, I say training classes. Um, I grew up where, you know, we had it. I mean, it, it was part of our curriculum. And while I will tell you, I, I was bored stiff with most of it. <laughs> uh, some of that, some of that has to do with just, you know, it's, it's, that can be kind of heady stuff. I didn't know the difference between a state representative and a U.S. representative. Uh-huh. And I hate to tell you, I don't know that I really truly understood that even when I graduated from college. And, and I later went on, having realized that this step is really critical and important, I later went back and got my master's degree in political science, something I had avoided in college because I thought they were a bunch of eggheads, you know. <laughs> but, but the fact is that we, you know, we are uh, we're training and educating our kids about so many other things and not about government, how it works. And that's really important because... Uh, you're going to, you know, going to spend a third of your the money you earn in the course of your lifetime. Uh, you're going to give it to the federal government or your state government. You ought to know something about that because you're an investor. You are really an investor in in government, and really you're an investor in politics as well because politics is what fuels government because that's how you that's how you have government. And so there's a whole lot of a whole lot of importance attached to this. And even if you don't really understand, you know, how many members of Congress there are, or what what's the, the difference between what the Senate does and what the House of Representatives does, and how they're different from the president. If you know some of that, as you get a little bit older and you start to have true buy-in with 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 the society, and that means. Uh, when you have your own house, if you can afford one now, and and if you're um, if you're uh, you know going into business or whatever, you suddenly need to know some of this. And then, and because you're getting a little bit more mature, you 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 want to learn a little bit more. How how come how did this happen? Uh, you know, it's it's just amazing to me that how little people know, but yet they'll tell you they they can name you the top fifteen songs that uh, Taylor Swift. Uh, you know, had gold, you know, turned gold on, you know. Um, so I, our, our whole our whole sense of of uh, of what's important is so skewed. And, and now, uh, and as you know, uh, we're growing up uh, in our business. The people who watch television news were typically those 25 and above, and more typically 34 and above, okay? But they were also the spending class. And so that was a good audience to have. If you had to have an audience, that's the one you wanted. All right. And and before that, you knew that, the, you know, 20-year-olds, 12, 18, 20-year-olds, they're not going to be, be reading newspapers. They didn't do it then. They don't. They certainly are not doing it now. But they eventually, as they had families and they had an investment in, in their, their neighborhood and their property and their government, they got to be a little bit more aware of what was going on and would pick up a paper or would read things that, that were of critical importance. Uh, they were being socially active and, and civically active. You don't see that anymore. You know, and nobody goes to town meetings because nobody knows anything about what's, go, what's going on in their town because their newspaper, if they had one, is gone. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and quite frankly, and this is kind of a dirty secret, a lot of the reporters, and I, I've seen this in television, that's, that's really my area of expertise. In television, 
the uh, institutional voices, the older reporters, the older anchors who knew the community, uh, and even if they didn't know the community from the time they were a, a kid, they, you know, like people uh-huh. like me, I moved from town to town. You did it yourself. But I would get into that town, and I would know that town better than most of the senior citizens there after I was there for six months or a year because I cared about it. You look at at the uh, reporters today, uh, and there are exceptions to this, by the way, but for the most part, because of the economics of television, it used to be the golden goose. I mean, you know, Uh lots of money. They they paid uh, news anchors and news reporters uh, pretty well and so forth. Uh, Now, uh, you'll see uh, a lot of the people who are in television now are very young. They're very inexperienced. Uh, you look at a major market, and if, they, if they're advertising for a reporter, they'll say, well, we, you, know, you need to have at least two years' experience uh, in television news. My God, two years' experience when I was getting into the business, that, that, that would consign you to Quincy, Illinois, and to uh, Joplin, Missouri, or whatever. And now, if you've got two years' experience, you are now marginally qualified to work in the top 20 market. And that, and, and, and a lot of times, I hate to say this, it's a little stereotyping maybe, but a lot of the people who are on television now, just they're, they're on TV, just be on TV, and if they got to do news, they'll kind of fake it. And um, and I know that's that's a very broad stroke, and I don't mean that for everybody, but I think that's probably truer now than it, than it, it was before. And and so you don't end up getting good. So if you do get people watching TV news or or working for a local newspaper, uh, you're not getting the kind of devoted experience. People, I, I got into the business when I was making no money at all. I, I got into the business because I loved it. I, I never expected to make good money. I ended up making really good money because I was in the golden age when, when you know, uh, people watched When the TV jobs news. actually, w- w- even though, even during the golden age, the starter jobs still, which were legion, didn't pay all that well. But you had the opportunity to move up, whether it was moving up to a bigger city or moving up to a bigger job at your station, the opportunity for growth was there. And... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, and now it just amazes me what reporters are expected to do, because it isn't just go out and cover this story. And we want, you know, one um, one version put together for the five o'clock news and another version put together for the six o'clock news. And now it's also and you've got to I'll write the story for the website. And don't forget to tweet about the story and make sure you link to the story on your personal social media. And I'm thinking, I'm not sure I could even do the job anymore. <laughs> I, I have to agree with you. I thought the same thing. Uh, and when the other thing, too, uh, just uh, this may be a little bit into the weeds for, for your listeners, but I think it might be helpful for them to know this. When when you and I went out on stories uh, wherever you were in your markets, wherever I was, I went out originally in St. Louis. I went out. And I was a reporter. I, I also went out with a cameraman, a sound man, and a light man. And eventually, and, and they were men, by the way. Um, uh-huh. that, that's another big change. And then eventually, the technology changed, where, and also, uh, you know, stations didn't want to have to send four people out to do a job that maybe two could do. Well, right. now they send 
one person out, and very often it's a young young woman, inexperienced, um, and they have to, as you point out, do all those other things. Plus, they're carrying their own gear. They're setting up their their own. Some of them are setting up their own live shots. We used to have a separate crews that would do that. You'd have a satellite truck, uh, but the, the equipment has gotten a lot easier to do. But again, somebody's got to do it, and it's all falling on the reporter. And they're now expected to do two, maybe three stories a day. A couple of them had to be live shots. And they're also, there are far more newscasts now. One of the days when you had a noon show at 6 o'clock or 10 o'clock or, you know. Now, I mean, TV stations, because, and and quite honestly, the TV stations aren't doing this for the most part because they want to be more civically responsible. They're doing it because... When Oprah had her show on the air, everybody wanted to have Oprah leading into your early newscast because it delivered a big audience. But Oprah's show cost so much money for a local station in franchise fees that they lost a huge amount of money on that. But they hoped to move that audience into their newscast where they would make, you know, mm-hmm. have a higher rating and they'd get more money for their ads locally. Well, they eventually found that with uh, Jeopardy and some of these other shows, I've got their, their you know, a laundry list of them, those shows you still have to pay money for. Mm-hmm. And they finally said, you know what? We've got 25 people, 35 people, 70 people in the newsroom. You know, we'll just have them do more. So we'll add a newscast. And, and, and their idea of adding a newscast was simply adding a newscast and maybe hiring a producer, maybe one additional reporter, which is really squeezing what is already a tight, uh, a tight newsroom uh, in trying to uh, you know, stretch out all of your resources over more newscasts. And so eventually what you end up having is kind of like a daily newspaper now. It's still a daily newspaper, but there ain't nothing in it. And if it is, it's mostly syndicated stuff. Or it's pulled stories from the other area newspapers that that same conglomerate newspaper yeah. owner oh, also yeah. owns. So, so you, you're, you know, if you, if you drive 20 minutes to another city, you'll see some of the same, the same news stories there because you know, the economy being uh, of all of this. They're, mm-hmm. they're sharing it. And so, so the localism is sort of going out the window because, you know, if, if something's happening, you know, 40 or 50 miles away, I may not really care about that because unless it's something really you know, significant, I may not care about that. But that's what that's what's in my newspaper. So then when they raise the rates on the newspaper, the Providence Journal used to be like 150 to 200 dollars, you know, uh, a year. It's now seven hundred and forty dollars. Oh, my God, you're kidding me. And there's nothing to speak of. I shouldn't say nothing, but, you know, it it is compared to what you remember. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, not what I remember, but what was (laughs) what was. So you end up having people who uh, here's where where it comes down to to the the civic getting out, out of the media industry for a minute. The effect of all this is you have people who know less about what's going on. And so those who do know what's going on, you know, whether they're the business owners or the union people or, or whatever, they can get away with a lot of stuff that they might not have gotten away with before. And and so uh, society 
is diminished as a result of that. And you end up, you know, you, you end up having a Matt Gates, uh, you know, getting elected or uh, what's the name, Sandoz, who just got kicked out. You know, you, you have to ask, I don't know whether you thought about this. What was the local media doing that George Santos got elected? Nobody knew anything about this guy. Yeah. He was a complete fraud. There His was a local resume. there was a local Long Island newsletter yeah. slash I don't know if we, if they rise to the level where we can call them a newspaper. They did a story. They were the only outlet and you know in the past Big organizations play, paid attention to what, you know, little organizations, national networks looked at what states and, and local reporters, especially at O&O's, um, properties that were owned by the big networks were doing. And, the, and they would and they would build on that. You know, they would um, they would um, continue on with that reporting. The person who was in charge of this Long Island newsletter said that it dumbfounded them at the time. But nobody, there was no newspaper, there was no digital site, nobody called them to follow up on their reporting. And they reported, hey, this guy's got a lot of holes in his background, not everything he says seems to be true. And then the rest of us discovered that, like, oh my God, how did this happen? And this little Long Island publication was like, we knew, we knew, but nobody (laughs) paid any attention to us. Right, right. So, and, and so, you know, a, a segment of New York had this guy representing them. I mean, this mm-hmm. was their guy. Yeah. And, you know, it was a lack of due diligence on the part of the newspapers. Uh, it was a lack of due diligence on the part of the party. You know, the party should have known something about this guy before they, they uh, got behind him. Uh, I, I, and again, you know, some people listening to this conversation might just say, "Well, that's just one. That's, that's like a one-off. Uh, you can't, you can't blame, you know, our current crisis, uh, uh, you know, just because you got one guy who got who slipped through." There are a lot of people who have slipped through, and uh, one of the good things about television, and quite honestly, it's one of the good things about CNN and MSNBC is. That there is so much videotape. Everybody's got a phone. They record these people saying one thing on Saturday and on Monday they say something else. And now they can show it back to back that the individual was lying. In all fairness, when I got into the business back in the late 60s, early 70s, we, it, it wasn't that easy to prove that somebody was not telling the truth in order to have the evidence. I mean, you knew the guy was not telling the truth because you heard one thing and said another, but it may not have been on camera. So now it's your word, either Mm -hmm. as a a political opponent or as even as a reporter. Well, he said this. Oh, I never said that. You're making that up. You've got to, you've got to, you've got something against me. So, so there's some good in all this as well. But uh, the fact of the matter is you, you really need to have truth tellers And we don't have a lot of truth tellers. And I frankly, I don't know how. I don't know how the people on Fox News get up in the morning. They must not have mirrors. I figured this out. They're probably unique because none of their people have mirrors. Because if you had a mirror, you'd have to look at yourself in that mirror every day and say, what the hell am I doing? Yeah. Is the money, do I love the fame and the money enough to just completely lie to the audience and myself every day? Yeah. Uh, David, we need to take a break. Uh, Dave Lehman and I are going to be right back with this discussion in a minute. 
This is Chicago's Progressive Talk, 820 AM, WCPT Willow Springs, and online at WCPT820.com, where facts matter. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am joined by longtime local newsman uh, Dave Lehman. We have been talking about the evolution of the current situation with how you get your information or maybe how you don't get your information. You know, like you, David, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this and I want to run uh, something by you that has occurred to me. Um, News when it was first on, and I don't know, was that back in the 50s, maybe just shortly after the onset of television? Um, It it was. Yeah, it was considered a public service. It was something that people had to do to justify their license with the government. Oh, yes, we care about people. Look, we're doing 15 minutes of news because the original news programs weren't even half an hour. Um, And so Mm -hmm. it was considered. Uh, it wasn't considered a profit center, so uh, it was just something that was done for the public good. And the wonderful thing about that is that there was no pressure to take a certain point of view. There was no pressure um, whether or not uh, somebody was taken to task. It was just the facts, ma'am. It was like this happened today. This bill was passed. You know, this person, uh, the president said this. And because of that evolution, the earliest people who really were in our homes all the time, I'm thinking about people like Walter Cronkite. We, as a, as a society, we learned to really trust them. And um, because there wasn't a huge corporate organization behind them saying, oh, don't do that story. That'll lose us a sponsor or this or that. And I think that especially our generation, people our age and older, we developed that habit of trust, and that's what I think Fox News has used to uh, fashion this sort of different version of reality, mostly in an older population. A couple years ago, I read, uh, it was like they did a demographic look at all the major cable organizations, and they all skewed old, but nobody skewed older than Fox. Their average right. viewer was like 70 um, yeah. Not that 70s old anymore. I just want to be clear about that. But um, <laughs> be careful. <laughs> but we're the generation that grew up with they sort of like they said it on TV, so it must be true. And I think right. that there's a the for all of their rejection of the sources of information that we came to rely on. I think they have, to some degree, a more cynical, maybe a more realistic view of information that comes their way. They don't um, automatically believe it. I mean, I'm sure you do, too. I know certain relatives who watch nothing but Fox. And, you know, you sit with them at the dinner table and, you know, you realize that their conversation is a regurgitation of Fox talking points. And right. You know, sadly, with with us, you know, we we usually avoid the conflict and just like change the subject or uh, dismiss a subject very quickly. But I think that that's where that's where Fox has um, had so much influence with a generation that learned that if it was they couldn't say it on TV, if it wasn't true. Right, David, they couldn't say it if it wasn't true. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. 
Well, uh, let me take issue with you on maybe one or two points. Uh, the 1960s uh, uh, was not the golden age of television news. Um, I have to tell you, uh, very much of the way television news and, and you know even the newspapers to some extent are mirroring what it was like back in the 1960s. I, I got into the business of uh, news in, in the uh, late 60s, and I can tell you, it really wasn't a lot of very good journalism. I mean, it was like the baby steps to get into the 60s or into the 70s, 80s, and 90s, which were really the golden years. You had consumer reporters on every station. You had investigative reporters separately from the consumer reporters. They were doing hard-hitting stories. The leading complaints uh, by most surveys, uh, by the Better Business Bureau, I think, and others were, the consumer complaints, uh, the highest number were on about cable TV when it came into being, and car dealerships. And you would be hard-pressed today to see any TV station or any newspaper do any kind of investigative reporting on the local automobile dealers or on cable. Hmm. And there's a reason for that. Now, uh, you know, life has changed in, in, in other ways uh, that, that, you know, would nibble away a little bit about what I'm saying. But, you know, car dealerships, I work for a station. I'm not going to identify the station, but uh, I raised an issue about uh, favorable coverage to uh, local uh, uh, auto dealers and the fact that we didn't cover, uh, you know, consumer complaints about these. And the president of the company, he and I had a very serious conversation after I had been on board for about a year, and I felt I really needed the feedback before I became part of the wallpaper there. I still had fresh eyes. And I said to him, and we had a, a huge argument about this, I said, you know, there's a sense in the newsroom, we can't do a story without somebody else's approval up here in the up in the general offices on a car dealership. And he said, absolutely untrue, absolutely untrue. That's not true. We argued and argued about this because I was telling him what the perception was. And eventually, he got so tired of the conversation with me, he said, well, let me tell you something, Dave. Your pay is, is, is funded 44% by our car dealer ads. Now, if you go out and find uh, 44% somewhere else, uh, I'm all ears. So he basically caved in to my argument. And, of course, my response to him was, you didn't hire me to become a salesperson for the, for the sales department. You hired me to be sure that we're putting on the best newscast that we can do. And so I said, what you need to do is you need to go out and get salespeople and get other people other than car dealers to come in here so they're not so dominant, and you're having to yield to them. And um, he uh, was kind of taken aback by that, I guess, either because he'd run out of arguments or he thought, God, you know, the guy's making some sense here. But think about this. If almost half a station's profits, and it may not be that high in a lot of areas, but let's say 25% of the profits, car dealerships, if you look at local news, you'll see a car dealership, uh, you know, in, in the same commercial break, you'll see uh, a Ford commercial, a, a Chevy uh, you know, truck commercial, backed by one other thing. You know, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, it was a policy that you couldn't run 
a commercial of a, of a, of an opponent uh, business in the same commercial pot. It had to be spread out into the next one. So if I was a Ford dealership and I had an ad, they ran at six fifteen right after weather. Uh, another car dealership couldn't be in that same commercial pod, they called it. Uh-huh. Now, <laughs> they run them back to back uh, with, with impunity. Uh, and, and there's nothing wrong with that, except it goes to show you how it is. And another point I would make is I remember the salespeople at the stations that I worked for, and I worked for some really, really good high-end, high honorable stations. I was very fortunate about that. I remember they hated election years because under federal law, you had to give a, a, a candidate for office, you had to give him the lowest possible rate for his commercial because, you know, they're, it's, they're doing something that's civic. Well, now there, there is so little money around for advertising that the TV stations look forward to, to, the, to every four years or mm-hmm. every two years because it brings in all this money. Uh, and I don't know what the rules are now, but what they, I don't know whether they have to pay a going rate or whether it's still they have to give them the lowest uh, rate for that, uh, for that time slot. But it goes to show you, I mean, it's mind-boggling that they hated, hated you know, political commercials because they were cheap. They, had, they couldn't charge much. And now they love them because it helps keep them afloat mm-hmm. for another year or two. So yep. there have been a lot of big changes. And I'll, I'll make one other point here. And uh, I, I wrote you a note uh, last week going back. This is a little bit of a, of a throwback. Uh, it's not throwback Thursday yet, but uh, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of your older viewers will remember the years of Walter Cronkite, Huntley Brinkley, and uh, uh, whoever was doing ABC at the time. Uh, Walter Cronkite at one time had 30 million viewers a night watching the CBS Evening News. Today, the CBS Evening News draws 5 million people, sometimes a little less. Uh, ABC, which is the leader, uh, has a 9 million audience, 9 million people watching. NBC uh, has about 7 million. If you add all of those together, they don't equal what Walter Cronkite had back in the late 70s. It goes to show you the diminishing element of this uh, with, with the audience for network news. Now, a lot has changed here. There's much more news available, and I get it. But it's just an interesting throwback mm-hmm. to think about that, that Walter Cronkite, 30 million, that's almost in the range of, uh, of Super Bowl numbers. Yeah, almost almost touching Super Bowl. But that was when they had appointment television. If you missed the news, you missed it. There was no cable to go to. There were no VCRs or DVRs or TiVos or on demand. (laughs) Yeah. But that's an interesting, just to give you a sense of how the audience has diminished. Now, local television news, I should point out, in spite of what we've said, local television news, while it has diminished a good deal in terms of its overall numbers, it's one of the few spots that has kind of uh, kind of settled into a, a, a regular audience. It's a much reduced audience, but the uh, loss of viewership for local television news uh, has kind of stemmed uh, a bit. But it, it, it stemmed at a, at a much lower rate than what it used to be. Uh, I remember uh, the station I worked with in Columbus, uh, WBMS, 
where, where you were, um, I remember we had the highest rated CBS 11 o'clock news in the country or 10 o'clock news in the country. And that was a powerhouse. I mean, you know, the salespeople who worked at the TV station, these people were order takers. They didn't have to go out and convince yeah. anybody. It, it used to be if, if you wanted to sell your product, you, you had to be on television or the newspapers, but more so television. And, and uh, But again, um, think about all those advertising dollars that used to go to CBS, ABC, and NBC. They are now spread out over what, 500 channels, uh, not counting yeah. digital and, and all of that. So that's where all that, that has gone. And newspapers uh, used to used to make uh, all kinds of money as well. They, uh, I, I remember I'll just one other point. The, the station I worked at in Dallas, uh, the word was that that station, uh, uh, every dollar they took in, 50, 50 cents of that was profit. Oh. Think about that. Oh, my God. A, 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 a normal company, a, a, a prosperous company today, hopes to make about 8 to 10% profit. They were doing well over 50% profit, but they were also a cheap TV station by, by most standards. But it was so profitable. Now, I, I don't know what the television station's uh, profit lines are. There are probably some that are still you know, 15, you know, 15% uh, profit, which is still terrific. Uh, grocery stores only make a, a one and a half to two and a half percent profit, just to give you a sense of what an accordion we had here Good. with TV stations. Uh, that we used to refer to it. You've heard this many a time. The TV stations were a license to print money. They were just yep. so profitable. Yeah. Hey, David, um, hang on a second. We've had a caller who's been waiting to join our conversation. Uh, Steve is calling in. Hey, Steve, you're on with uh, me and Dave Lehman. Go ahead. Yes, I think it's an immensely interesting conversation. And, and to put it in context with regard to Cronkite, I mean, keep in mind that you were talking about in 1970, a population of a little over 200 million in this country versus 335 million today. So imagine, right. think about how uh, uh, the distinction and, and beyond mm -hmm. that, you know, I, I absolutely agree with you. And there's an additional problem that, you know, extends beyond people not turning, tuning into something that has credibility, that today you can tune into whatever suits your ideological bent. So in other words, you know, people had no idea what Cronkite thought until years after he retired, whether he was a Democrat or Republican, conservative or liberal, and people liked that. And Johnson famously said, you know, once Cronkite had mentioned the, with regard to his views on the Vietnam War, once I, I lost Cronkite, I've lost the American people. And, yep. and, and exactly. that, that's the kind of power that they had. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I mean, unfortunately, today, young people are, do not understand the distinction between these various outlets. I had a, a student during COVID. I got uh, roped into teaching a political science class. I had a student uh, email me a while ago and ask me what I thought about the, this analysis, and it was from a YouTube channel, and, and it's a guy playing video games talking about public policy, and I'm like, what in God's name are you sending me, and how is this your idea of a credible resource in terms of analysis of what's going on in your society? But this is the thing. Young people think that a guy with a YouTube page and 800,000 followers is an alternative to something that's on C-SPAN, and it's not. Yeah. Oh, my God. That just sounds like so very today. Well, you know, he may have been a gamer, Steve, but he was talking about policy. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, well, yeah, and and and, and, I, and I can start a channel and talk about medicine. Forget the fact that I've never been to medical school. I mean, you know, yeah. what, what does that matter? You know. Yeah. 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 Everybody's an expert now, and and, and especially the people yeah, exactly. who have big followings. Somehow that lends the kind of credibility to somebody that they actually used to have to earn. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the, the American people are finally starting to grasp the idea, this, this concept called epistemic responsibility. It used to be something that you heard in graduate schools and philosophy classes and journalism classes and a few other places. Now people are starting to understand what that means, you know, that you have a responsibility when you have an audience to actually have some basis for what you're saying, some, some educational background, some qualifications, experience. Yeah. Uh, Steve, uh, Steve, uh, to your to your uh, your point about a student, I I taught uh, a number of semesters in college, uh, uh, broadcast news, writing, and journalism, and it was eye opening to me. Uh, you know, being a, a news anchor and reporter all those years, and also uh, you know doing this more of a community service uh, than anything else, teaching college, and I had. I had assigned a reading from the book of Robert Kennedy, The Life and Times of Robert Kennedy, I think it was. And I assigned the chapter in there, <clears throat> and one of the students in my class uh, raised, raised her hand, and she said, uh, Mr. Lehman, um, now this, this Robert Kennedy book that you want us to read an excerpt from, now is he related at all to the Kennedys of Massachusetts? Holy crap. Oh my God! <laughs> and this is in Rhode Island. Oh my this God! Is next door to Massachusetts, where the Kennedys were, were you know clearly the legacy family of of all generations. But Unbelievable! When I heard that, you know, oh my God! I thought, oh, had we lost a generation? And that yeah, was really. back in the late well, eighties. I will tell you though. One thing that gives me hope, and it isn't, I don't, you know, it's not across the board, but a lot of communities, I'm sure you're seeing it too, are creating these hyper-local news organizations. Like we, you know, the, there used to be something called DNA Info, but it uh, went out of business. And here in Chicago, a group of those reporters got together and they started something called Block Club Chicago. And I've heard of these kinds of things like the courier newsrooms are trying to do these hyper local, um, largely digital kinds of websites, some for political news, some just for neighborhood news. What do you think of that trend, David? Well, ironically, I uh, proposed that uh, quite a number of years ago. I, I built out a whole proposal for uh, local uh, television stations to have a hyper-local newscast as part of their newscast lineup and having a, uh, a reporter assigned to uh, each section of the state. Uh, again, this is Rhode Island, so it's, you're talking about the equivalent of a big city where you would get to the stories before even maybe the Providence Journal might get to it or the Boston Globe. And, uh, but uh, I couldn't get any takers on it because, uh, you know, even then they were still trying to figure out how they, how they were going to, you know, you know, manage what they already had. And so it really went nowhere. And I actually called it the hyperlocal newscast. And I, it, I think it's still a model that with some modifications could work today because what you're doing is um, 
I, I did something you might find this interesting, uh, John. I I hired a person who I didn't want to have any aspirations to be on the air, and I didn't want her to be assigned to the assignment desk at all. Her job was to reach out to each and every city and town in Rhode Island, and to find the the, the local the local renegade, if you will, or the local person who went to the town meeting, you know, they, they, it's something they just believed in. They, they really were kind of like uh, the, 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 the squeaky wheel in the town because they all, almost always knew the stories that newspapers would die to get, the local newspapers would die mm-hmm. to get. And, and her job was to contact them twice a week, at least once a week and twice a week, and we developed more stories out of that because it showed that we, first of all, we cared that there's a little bit of a hyper local aspect to that as well. And we broke more stories. We, we got, uh, we got people out of office. We did all sorts of things, but you know, another news director came in after I, I stepped down and uh, he thought, well, I could use that as another reporter. And, you know, so that got swallowed up into the news machine as opposed to being this independent person who reported directly to me so that I could be sure that she was doing what I wanted her to do. And, and she had no aspirations of being on the air. So she got a big kick out of being able to break a story because she, <laughs> she wouldn't do the story. She would get the information turn it over to a reporter, and he would go out and do it. So th- th- this was very a very efficient way of finding news stories, because if you've got a reporter doing all that, they're not mm-hmm. out on the street doing a story for that newscast that night. So anyway, that uh, so was a uh, that was a model that should have been in place in a lot of uh, a lot of different newsrooms. And that's that's absolutely brilliant. And that's kind of yeah. here in town, Block Club Chicago. That's what they do. Mm-hmm. They have re- uh, reporters that basically live in the neighborhoods and they're assigned like four different uh, neighborhoods and you know mm-hmm. they talk to the shop owners and they go to the coffee shops and listen to the conversations and they figure out what's happening there and it's it's a, always a really fascinating fascinating read and um courier newsroom is kind of uh, as best i understand it trying to take that model they do these uh, websites and newsletters, and they'll tell you, like, you know, the best place to get hot cocoa this weekend when it's right. going to be cold or the best place right. to ice skate. But then what they do is they get they get their local audience and then they they add some political stuff. By the way, there's a school board election coming up and you should know mm-hmm. that the one of the candidates is from Moms for Liberty. And they mm-hmm. feel that this is a really effective way to reach people who don't want to read about politics and government. Right, right, right. Well, the, the, uh, I just had a fleeting thought there. Let me see if I can pull it back. Um, oh, uh, on a positive note, since we're coming up towards the end of the hour, on a positive note, even about Trump, who I consider to be the world's most dangerous man, um, I remember being so aggravated in, in the 90s. Uh, you know, the economy, for the most part, in the 90s was really good. Uh, Bill Clinton, who I, I didn't care for a whole lot, uh, when he left office, we had no national debt. I mean, there's no question about that. Everything was so good, nobody cared about hard news. I mean, this was the rise of some of these celebrity shows you'd see every night. And 
nobody wanted to talk about anything serious. It was always about uh, the equivalent of the Kardashians at the time or whatever. And I kept thinking, why are, is everybody dazzled by the fact that the economy is good? You know, everybody was working. The unemployment rate was actually just a little bit higher than what it is now. So it was a full employment economy. And I thought, God, these people need to need to be focusing on some of the serious issues. We've got an environment to worry about. We've got a crime problem still. And and one thing that Trump has done, this this is kind of like good coming out of evil, is people are very, very much attuned now to, to a lot of policy things. Uh, you know, they may not be very well informed about them, but at least the public discussion is about some items of substance, whether it's uh, health care, you know, Social Security, Medicare, uh, the border, and so on. And unfortunately, not a whole lot is getting done about some of that. But at least it's part of the conversation. It wasn't the conversation in the 1990s, no matter how what, how we viewed them as halcyon days for, for the news business. It, it was celebrity time because nobody was worried about anything to speak of except for, you know, age and things like that. You know, you never escape that or you never escape serious issues like that. But uh, there was no public dialogue to speak of the way there, the way it was in the 70s with the Vietnam yeah. War, with the, uh, you know, <laughs> feminism, you know, civil rights and all of that. And I, I just thought that was the that was a decade of everybody was just out, you know, on cocaine or something, <laughs> nobody paid any attention. Now, I, one of the one of the benefits of having this awful guy as, as our former president, and I, who I still say is going to end up in jail, um, is the fact that people are talking about serious things, and it's now so serious that I think we're inundated by it, and it affects the overall mood of the country, yeah. which is not good. David, we got to wrap this up. An hour has flown by. Um, thank you so much for um sharing this hour with me i think this is a i think this is an important discussion and i think it's good background for folks going into an election year uh appreciate it my friend and by the way that picture uh you look just as handsome as always even if the hairline is a little tiny bit further back I'm still searching for it. (laughs) Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm pleased in this uh, last hour today to be joined by political science professor William Muck. He's with North Central College in Naperville. And, you know, as as is often when I'm talking to uh, somebody who has a particular a wide-ranging area of expertise. We exchanged some emails about what we're going to talk about. It's like every time William and I exchanged an email, there were more topics added. As uh, And then what we're going to start with, this decision today about um, immunity, I don't even know if that made it into any of our emails, William, but... Um, I had I had mentioned it uh, at the top of the show that uh, the good news of the day was that this uh, three judge appeals court uh, panel voted unanimously that he does not get immunity from crimes. Um, I got a little bit more of um, of the text of that ruling from the Washington Post. Um, they quoted a, a couple of the paragraphs about about why uh, they they did what they did. Um, we cannot accept former President Trump's claim 
that a president has unbounded authority to commit crimes that would neutralize the most fundamental check on executive power, the recognition and implementation of election results. Nor can we sanction his apparent contention that the executive has carte blanche to violate the rights of individual citizens to vote and to have their votes count. Uh, the question is, is that language clear enough and strong enough that uh, the Supreme Court will choose the wise path of ducking this issue altogether and refusing to hear the appeal? What do you think of what happened and where we go from here? It's hey, John, it's a really dramatic day. Right. And uh, so, you know, this afternoon in between kind of work and run, I was kind of uh, perusing through the decision itself. And it is decisive. You know, the the yeah. argument they make is that this is not even a close call, which it shouldn't surprise us. Right. I mean, the argument that Trump was making was just patently silly. Right? He was basically, you know, he's arguing that the president is immune from any criminal you know, responsibility and, and the whole system is based on. On checks and balances. And of course, the founders didn't intend uh, the president to be immune from, from criminal charges. And, and so that's what the decision reads like. This is not a close call. Of course, the president isn't immune. And so to your question, I think they've made it a lot easier for the Supreme Court, right? I think they can look at this decision. The Supreme Court can look at this and say, yep, that's good. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know we, we, don't, we don't know. I mean, I, I will be really curious if the Supreme Court takes the case, right? All it takes is four justices to say, yes, we want this. And again, that slows the process down. But I would not be surprised if they just give this one a thumbs up and just let it stand. Uh, and, and, and again, that has all sorts of implications for Trump's trial. But but it really it's the New York Times has has a, 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 the, the, the decision up there and they sort of break down some of the key segments to it. So it makes it a little bit easier to read. And it was, it was sort of fascinating to go through and see the declarative language. And yeah, this was this is an overwhelming decision. And, you know, uh, obviously the Supreme Court, part of the reason they get that lifetime appointment is so that they are supposed to be untouched and untouchable by political or public opinion. But they're human beings. They obviously know what people are saying and what people are writing. I mean, you know, when this organization for the first time in its history comes up with a code of ethics, that ain't because one day they woke up and said, hey, let's do something nobody else has ever done. It was in response to a lot of the negative publicity they were getting. And I think that taking on this case for them is an absolute no-win situation. No matter how they rule on this case, I think they're going to get going to get tremendous grief. On the one hand, if they side with Donald Trump, they will further cement the view that they're nothing but a bunch of partisan hacks. If they go against Donald Trump, well, then they put themselves and their families and their colleagues at physical risk from risk from the craziest of the MAGA world. I mean, I think that I hope they hang on to this appellate court ruling with both hands and say, you know what? This is good. Yep. This, this <laughs> we've got a, oh, we've got so many cases to think about. Mm, not going to do this one. Um, yeah, I, and I, I don't you're... know what the time frame is. Obviously, Donald Trump is going to try to appeal this to the Supreme Court. And I don't know how quickly they will make their decision as to whether or not they're going to add this to the, to the docket. But, I um I mean we already know that we're not going to see a March court date as we expected on this trial um in DC but it sure would be nice if it was maybe April I could go with April April works for me well, Absolutely 
Absolutely. And I think that was one of the more interesting things about the decision themselves, the way they set this up, the appeals court. Basically, Donald Trump has till Monday to appeal to the Supreme Court. Now, he could go to the full appellate, right? He could say, instead of the three judges, I want to go to the full appellate court. But if he does that, the way they've written this decision, the trial starts up again, or the, you know, Chutkin can begin the process. So they've sort of hamstrung him. So he either has to go right to the Supreme Court, uh, or he has to worry about the trial starting up again. So they were very, very strategic in in how they handled the date. So it's possible that by Monday, uh, Donald Trump appeals to the Supreme Court, and then the Supreme Court takes a week or two to review it. And if they don't get those four justices, uh, then it goes away, right? They they say we're not taking it, and then the trial starts back up again. So you're you're right that this is is caused a delay, but it's possible that if the court punts on this, the Supreme Court punts on this, that that trial gets moving again. I think you're right. We could be looking at a potential April date for the trial. So and again, all these moving parts are so fascinating to watch. Yeah, yeah, they they really are. Um, okay, um, since we have, <laughs> this is going to be like a lightning round, okay? Enough, we, <laughs> we talked about that one. Um, so let's move on to, um, I, wanted, I wanted to talk to you about Nikki Haley. Uh, I yeah. was uh, reading an, an article that kind of opened my eyes to something I should have known or recognized but really didn't, and this was a political strategist who said, well, you know, um, You know, if anybody who's running for president, they don't drop out because they see that they have no path to the White House. They don't drop out because they don't they see they're not going to get very many votes. They only drop out when they run out of money. And as long as Nikki Haley has money, you know, expect her to stay in the race. The same person also said that even though we um, we're all expecting Trump to win uh, South Carolina, that if Nikki Haley did as well as 40 or even 45 percent, they could see her definitely being in this race for the foreseeable future. What do you think about Nikki Haley? No, absolutely. You are, you are so right to highlight the money. That's what keeps these campaigns going. And, and so what, what she's got to do is continue to get enough support that those, the never Trumpers continue to fund this campaign and they want to continue to have a conversation. What we've seen over the last week or two is that Nikki Haley is getting under the skin of Donald Trump. He's frustrated. You know, she's been much more forceful. I think she's been more forceful than, than DeSantis was in terms of pointing out Trump's weaknesses. She's going after his age and his mental abilities, right? She's pushing him in a way that DeSantis couldn't. So if she sticks around for the remainder of the primary, that's a real problem for Trump. And I think that's why he's come out more recently and said that anybody who's donating to her is cut out, right? And he's, he's sort of making this into a loyalty test. You're either mm-hmm. with me or you're not with me. Um, so, I, you know, I sort of hope that she can continue to, to stick around because I think that's good for everybody to have more conversation, to remind us about Donald Trump. And as long as she's in the campaign, she can bring up these issues and push him. So, no, I, I think it's been it's been a really interesting dynamic to watch her get under the skin, you know, of, of Donald Trump. You know, and politicians um, generally have a very strong se- sense of self protection and what's good for them, regardless of whether it's good for who they represent. But he actually did exactly what you said. He threatened donors. I believe it was like if you give even a dollar to Nikki Haley, like you're dead to me. You're dead to me. You know, don't come back to me after that. Um, <laughs> so he threatened donors. And in New Hampshire, when he won, 
he made the angriest, most unpleasant victory speech that I can ever remember hearing. Um, these two things do not seem to be the street smart sort of strategy that we've come to expect from him. Were you sh- when he came out in New Hampshire and was basically he, he talked like he was the loser. He was angry. He was mad. Um, he was vindictive. What was what was the upside there? What was uh, in his mind? How did that help him? Please explain it, it, this to me. <laughs> it didn't. He's his own worst enemy because, you know, what he should have done there is is talked about the big victory and moved on. The more he's talking about Nikki Haley, the worse he's doing. And when he does this, where he says, you know, if you donate to Nikki Haley, you're dead to me. Uh, you know, his campaign team hates that, right? Because it creates all these awkward questions in the future. So, no, I mean, it, it's bad politics. It's a bad way to run a campaign. Uh, and, and again, it, it reinforces this point that there's something about Nikki Haley that gets under her skin. Well, actually, we know what it is. She's a woman, right? We we can think back to 2016 and and the way that that Hillary Clinton just sort of irritated Donald Trump because she was a woman. And so we're we're seeing some parallels there where Trump does not like not like dealing, doesn't like campaigning against a woman, and it reveals an ugliness to his character, which is not good. I mean, he's still going to win the primary, but we're we're being reminded of of who Donald Trump is, and I, I think that's not good for him in terms of his electoral prospects. Yeah, um, we have a clip of um, Nikki Haley talking recently to CNN's Dana Bash. And Andy pointed out what the thing that he found really interesting here was, even though she's still in it and even though, you know, she's going after Biden and Trump. In If you listen to this interview, she kind of accepts that Trump is going to be the nominee. Go ahead and play that, Andy. Do you believe that the American people should know whether Trump is going to be found guilty of criminal charges before he is potentially formally nominated at your party's convention this summer? It's a real issue, Dana. I mean, you know, we saw that he had, look, he's got multiple court cases. I haven't necessarily kept up with them. I'm not a lawyer. I'm an accountant. So I don't know the legal ramifications. But what I do know is one just came down. He had a big verdict. More than that, we just saw that he, in his disclosures, his campaign disclosures, he just paid 47 different law firms, $50 million of campaign donations that came into his campaign. If you see that, and he hasn't even gotten started on all these cases, for the next year he's going to be sitting in a courtroom. I didn't say that. He said that he's going to be spending more time in a courtroom than he is going to be campaigning. So is it your hope that there are verdicts before the convention? Well, it's my hope that I think that the American people deserve to know which of these cases are legitimate and which ones aren't. You know, he's going to have another one, I think, in March. I think he's going to have more in April and May. I think the American people deserve to know what the situation's going to be. But, you know, the court system's going to play out the way it is. He has the right to defend himself. But at the same time, you know, I think it speaks for himself that he's saying he's going to be spending more time in a courtroom than he's going to be spending on the campaign trail. We've got a country in disarray and a world on fire. We need a president that's going to give us eight years of focus and discipline, not one that's going to be sitting there ranting about how he's a victim and how, you know, this isn't right and how this isn't just. He hasn't once talked about the American people, and that's the problem I have with all of this. Thoughts on that, William? 
it, it, Nikki Haley's really good at this, right? Because she is, she's attacking Trump without directly attacking him. She's avoiding some of the mistakes that the other primary candidates made. And she's reminding everybody of all the legal cases and not weighing in on the merits of those cases, but reminding him of what, what reminding the American public of what they're going to be watching, what they're going to be dealing with and planting the seed to say, if you don't want this, I'm still here. And I think she's, she realizes the math is the math and that she's not going to beat, beat him in the, in the traditional primary. But there may come a point where the Republican Party has to say, do we want to nominate somebody who's been found guilty of a felony, multiple felonies, and, and been found guilty of, of state crimes, right? And so I think she's creating the space to say, if you're exhausted with all of that, here I am. And I, I think it's just a brilliant <laughs> way of, of playing all of this. Um, I I still suspect that um, that she is hanging on in and praying for a major medical event. But I yesterday I was talking to uh, the former head of the Republican Party in Illinois, a man by the name of uh, Pat Brady, and he's on the Nikki train. He was actually told me that after our interview, he was going to be leaving because he's hitting the road because he's going to campaign with her and try to, um, you know, I guess, knock on doors for her. And he seems to think, uh, and you know, God love him, but he seems to think that if she just continues to do well, that somehow the Republican Party that has built its current existence around Trump will say, oh, you know what, this Nikki Haley girl, she's still here. She's been doing really good. Maybe we should, you know, take her seriously. Maybe we should or she should be the nominee. He seems to honestly think that there is some sort of magical path for Nikki Haley. And I got to tell you, uh, like I said, unless Trump has a major medical event that takes him out of the race, I don't see it. I don't see it if he gets uh, convicted. Um, I don't see it if he gets 10,000 more indictments. Um, I just don't see it. Am I missing something that you see? No, no, I think you're right. I mean, because the, the Republican Party is not a traditional political party anymore. It's a political movement that is backing Donald Trump, right? It is, it is all in on Trump, the individual. It's not about Republican orthodoxy or ideas or philosophy. It's about Donald Trump. So the only way Nikki, you know, gets this position is if Trump goes away, right? If he's put in jail, if, if he has a health issue, like that's the only way this happens. So I just don't think there's going to be a groundswell of support for her. That would be enough to over, overtake him in terms of uh, you know the upcoming primary states because he's in such a strong position. Uh, the polling is very clear. He's got a much better team. You know, they've lined up people all over the place. They've actually got good people on the ground that are very, very effective. Um, so that's going to be a, that's a daunting challenge. And so, so I think you're right. It's got to be some some other intervention that removes Trump that creates a space for Nikki Haley. Um, we have a caller who wants to join our conversation. Jim is calling in from Chicago. Uh, Jim, you're on with me and Professor William Muck. Go ahead. Good afternoon. To clarify, clarify uh, the people would think they could see the future. Clairvoyance. Haley, clairvoyant, I apologize. I That's okay. I get stuck all uh, the time. Anyway, I can say that they are saying that Nikki would take walk into the presidency if Trump, if the Grand Ole Party's frontrunner was eliminated somehow. But I take, uh, I object to that idea because for many reasons. First of all, 
the Trump supporter, the average Trump supporter, will be so forlorn that they're not going to leap behind Nikki Haley. And Nikki Haley has no enthusiasm. I listen, I go through Republican radio, unfortunately, just for <laughs> bits and bits and pieces, and they don't have any enthusiasm for Nikki Haley. Wow. They don't even like, they don't even like Nikki Haley. So if Trump is uh, stroked out or whatever happens to the poor guy, and Nikki Haley's the candidate, everybody says, well, Nikki Haley will be, because of the, of the spring chicken idea, that she's a spring chicken and, and, and Biden's an old man. But I don't think that's going to do it. I don't think that's enough to do it, because I don't think the Republicans are going to have any enthusiasm to vote for her. Anyway, that's my opinion, Professor. Interesting. Thanks, Joe, for, yeah, thanks for taking my call, Joe. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, interesting that that's the sense you've gotten talking um, or listening to conservative uh, radio. And I guess I see where Jim's going with that, because, you know, I'm sure, William, you've seen the uh, surveys and polls where as many as half of Nikki Haley's supporters and voters said that if she doesn't get the nomination, they'll vote for Biden, which I think is which is I think is extraordinary. Yeah, and it would pose a real challenge for Joe Biden, right? Because his whole campaign has been premised on the idea that Trump is an existential threat to the democracy. So he would have to shift gears quite dramatically. Now, Nikki Haley has benefited because the spotlight has not been on her entirely, right? So sort of she's, when you're running in second or third, it's a lot easier. You know, once you become, you know, the big star, then, you know, then the, the, the lights are on you. It's a little bit more challenging. And my guess is that the numbers would be similar. Um, but I also think, you know, Jim pointed out a really important point point, the enthusiasm gap, right? And and that's what's driving so much of Trump's support is, is his followers love him and are devoted to him. And it's not clear that if there was another candidate, whether it be Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis, that they would show up in the same numbers. So I think, you know, it changed things, but I don't know if it necessarily improves the odds of the, Repu- of the Republicans. Do you think uh, it would have any impact if somebody like Chris Christie endorsed her. And he has said publicly that he's not going to because he believes that the minute she capitulates, she's going to get behind Trump. And I happen to agree with him. But if he did throw his support behind her, would it make a difference? I don't think dramatically, right? It's hard to know. I mean, I think there's, I think maybe a little bit, but at the end of the day, you know, the Trump supporters are are behind Trump and those who are, you know, supporting Nikki Haley are there, right? I don't think it would pull necessarily away from Biden. I think the people that are, that are behind Haley are, they're going to be there no matter what. And I think they would like if Chris Christie gave that endorsement because it would sort of um, offer a more centrist view to the party. But I don't think that's really a game changer. Hmm. Yeah. And I happen to agree that I I think she's going to finesse it because I think she does feel like she has a future with this party. I don't think it's going to be I'm in, you know, I'm pulling out of the race and I'm throwing my support behind Donald Trump because I think he's the best candidate and has great policies. I think she's going to take the I'm I'm, you know, withdrawing from the race and I will vote for whomever the Republican nominee is because, by gosh, we can't let Joe Biden win. I suspect that that's how she'll do it. But I think that um, I think she absolutely will do it. I mean, she's she's not been a woman to stand on principle. She's been like Lindsey Graham, you know, with sticks a finger, wet finger out to see which way the wind's blowing before he gives an interview. Um do you think she'll endorse Trump when she finally leaves? Oh, yeah. 
I think she, I think you have to, right? I mean, I think if she wants a future in the party, she has to. So then there's this really awkward moment where she has to say like, well, it wasn't me, but he, he'd still be better than Biden. And then I, my guess is that she would go away, right? So she does the endorsement and then sort of hides, uh, because I think she perceives Trump to be icky, right? I mean, it, it's clear that, you know, she understands where the Republican party is and what she's got to do to get votes. But, but I mean, she served with the, with him and she understands what he's all about. So yeah, I, I have no doubt that she would. I, it would be wonderful if she didn't, right? If she said, no, I'm standing on principle, but I, I think she's, she's an insider. And I think it's likely that she would, she would do what all the others have done, which is they, yeah. they endorse Donald Trump then. Um, Professor William Muck and I are talking about all the political news of the day. Um, I haven't really given out the phone line, but we've already gotten a few callers today. So if you would like to join our conversation, 773-763-9278. We will be back right after this. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. And I am talking to the co-host of the podcast Politics Lab, political science professor William Muck of North Central College in Naperville. Let us move now to um, an issue that has gotten overly complicated and overly political. Uh, this, you know, there was a bill that was designed to bring aid to Israel and Ukraine and the Indo-Pacific region, a.k.a. Taiwan. And Republicans said, no, no aid from us unless it's tied to uh, the border changes and um, money for the border. And so Democrats sat down and talked to him about it and worked something out. And only by the time they reached an agreement, Donald Trump had realized that the border was possibly uh, immigration was possibly the best club with which to beat Joe Biden up and said to the Republicans, no, 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 don't vote on this. No, don't do anything, because I want to be able to say that Biden hasn't done anything. I want to go after him that way. And so um, all of a sudden, Republican support for the very bill that they had demanded disappeared. You know, and now we've got Mike Johnson is saying that if this Senate bill ever gets to the House, it's going to be dead on arrival that maybe he will resurrect a standalone aid bill for Israel um, because, you know, Taiwan and Ukraine can just go suck it. Um, and uh, Republicans um, putting their tail between their leg and walking away. I have never seen such raw politics play out on such an important set of issues, William. And I, I got to tell you, I mean, I think it's cynicism with a capital C. What, what did you think as you saw all of this unfold? It's truly extraordinary, right? Because you can think about this. If we just take it from the political lens, the Republicans laid a, a, a really good trap, right? They said, okay, Democrats, I know you want this war, you know, that you want the funding for Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan, all of these things. We'll give you that if you give us the border, right? Give us the legislation we're looking for. That's a, that's a good trap, right? To, to sort of put some pressure on the, uh, the Democrats. And then the Republicans fell into their own trap, right? I mean, they, you know, the Joe Biden did the thing that nobody thought 
thought he would do, which is agreed to it, right? I mean, he went really far to the right on some of this uh, immigration legislation, things that I think most Democrats probably are a little uncomfortable with, but realized it's probably the right thing to do to get the Ukraine aid and, and Israel and all the other things. Uh, and then the Republicans just fumbled this moment, and they have now given – Joe Biden talking points for the remainder of the campaign, right? This is not going to go away for the Democrats. They're going to continue to bring it up time and time again because immigration was the issue that Donald Trump was going to run on. And he's going to continue to run on it. But now Joe Biden has a response to say, I was willing to shut down the border. Mm-hmm. I was willing to do everything that was necessary. And it's going to take some of the steam out of that that argument that Trump wants to make. So I, it just feels like they've fumbled this opportunity. It's, it's bad politics. And, and to your point... It's cynical. It's awful. It just makes you feel uncomfortable about like what the government is doing. This isn't about good governance. This is about elections and politics. Yeah. And um, another issue um, that I want to talk. Well, wait, I have a couple more questions before we move off of this one, because do you think a standalone aid bill that ignores Ukraine, but um, but allows funding for Israel will will work. Do you think anybody will vote for that? I think the Democrats need to hold out because support for Israel is something that Republicans in the House of Representatives seem to want. Uh, and I think if Repu- if Democrats don't tie aid to Ukraine to the aid package to Israel, that Ukraine is going to be l- left out in the cold. Thoughts? Yeah, 100%. I think the Democrats, and Biden in particular, will say those things have to be linked. Uh, Israel and Ukraine aid has to go through together or or start with Ukraine and then go to Israel. I mean, it's, it's got to be done because you're right. So the Republicans are willing to do the Israeli aid, but they're not willing to do, or at least a small segment of them. And it's, it's sort of a strange dynamic in the Republican Party right now because most Republicans continue to support Ukraine. But it's the sort of small contingent within the party that has moved against Ukraine that is slowing all of this down. And, and Mike Johnson may actually be part of that. But but yeah, I think Biden will have to be firm about this to say, you know, the United States has allies around the world and we're going to tie all this aid together. And I think that's good politics as well to do that. Rana Romney McDaniel, the head of uh, the Republican national effort, has apparently not been loyal enough, apparently has not. I'm I, I'm trying to figure out exactly what sin she's committed, uh, because it seems to me she's capitulated to Trump literally at every turn. But now he's saying that, um, yeah, probably time for somebody new in that job. Um, he's going to he's going to come out and say more about that later. Why do these people continue to think that he is capable of any kind of loyalty. Joan, power is a seductive drug, right? And if you have the chance to be close to power, you will, you know, people will make a fool of themselves. And that's what we're seeing. And again, we're looking at a Republican Party that's not about ideas. It's not about some sort of, uh, you know, philosophy, a small government. It's about Donald Trump. It's all about loyalty. And that creates these just awful, awkward moments where people, you know, you think about there's a long list of people who've behaved just like her and Donald Trump throws out and then he'll bring them back later. Um, but it's not a way to run a political party. It doesn't create stability. Um, and I don't think you're going to win elections that way either. And and again, those individuals are just turned into mush because that <laughs> one powerful demagogue can do whatever they want. So, you know, I sort of feel sorry for her, but she should have known that this was coming because everybody who gets in that position inevitably gets
it's on the wrong side of Trump. Yeah. We have a caller who wants to join our conversation. Ron is calling in from Chicago. Ron, you're on with me and Professor Muck. Go ahead. Yes. Uh, the Republicans have laid their cards on the table. Um, I'm afraid that there will be no help for Ukraine and Taiwan until the Democrats have control of the House. So I'm afraid of that, too. Uh, who, knows what might, who knows what might happen until then? Well, I, I was talking to one expert on the situation in Ukraine who basically said if it takes um, the elections of 2024 and a rearrangement and we're looking at January of 2025, that that may just be too late for Ukraine. That, I mean, we're already reading in the in the newspapers today that uh, the Russians are making inroads again because Ukrainian military doesn't have enough ammunition to fight them the way they'd like to fight them. I mean, that's just tragic. It really is. And we think about, you know, for the last couple of months, it's it's been basically a stalemate where there hasn't been a lot of movement either way. But then more recently, you're starting to see Russia be able to push it. Right. And Russia has just, you know, a lot of resources. You know, in many ways, they're sort of a dysfunctional country, but they do have a lot of military resources and they've built up alliances with North Korea and Iran to continue to get the military that they need. Now, the good news is that the EU voted in on a massive uh, aid package that's going to go to Ukraine. So that will help. But at the end of the day, it really is dependent upon the United States stepping up here. And, and it will be a major test for for mainstream Republicans. Are they willing to to let Ukraine go down and, and sort of be pulled on with them? I mean, remember how angry Republicans were when the United States left uh, Afghanistan, right? So this is, has that same sort of dynamic. Are you going to allow another country to collapse on your watch? And I would hope that that's enough pressure to get Republicans to move ultimately on Ukraine. I, I hope that's the case. Yeah, I hope that's the case too. But right now, it just seems like there is such incredible dysfunction that that I'm not sure, you know, it's going to be possible. I, I really, I always felt that in the end, you know, that they would pull it out. You know, Mitch McConnell supports aid to Ukraine. It doesn't have, uh, you know, there are Republicans that do support this, but it seems that they are falling apart in a way that, that makes, um, and that makes me think that for the first time we might not pull this one out of the fire at the last minute. Um, I'm really, I'm really nervous about that. When you continue to play chicken over and over again, eventually something's going to go wrong, right? We can think about this with the budget impasse. Like going right to the edge of the cliff is not a good strategy. And and again, you, you hope it works out, but there's no guarantee. And this is this is what happens when you have a political party that's no longer based on governing, right? It's it's, it's based on politics and partisanship, but it's not based on good governance. It's not like the Republicans are saying we've got better ideas. Here's our policy platform, right? That they they agree that Ukraine should be funded. But they, the politics of it is not convenient for them right now. So then, again, that's the danger, it's danger when it's no longer about governing. Mm. Professor William Muck and I are going to take a break. We are going to be back right after this. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I am joined... Uh, with by political science professor William Muck. 
from North Central College in Naperville. He co-hosts a podcast called Politics Lab. And I do, as a point of information, want to uh, remind you all that one of Patty Vasquez's guests tonight is U.S. Congressman from Illinois, Mike Quigley. Mike Quigley, of course, a big part of the Ukraine caucus. Uh, we chatted with him last Friday um, when I think there was at least a glimmer of hope that somehow this border bill funding package was going to survive in some manner or not. Um, and uh, I have a feeling that things are going to be a little bit sadder in today's conversation unless unless he can just um, tell us all that there's light at the end of the tunnel. Um, but I don't know. I um, I think that we have reached a level of dysfunction in Washington. That is what was, you know, everybody was predicting, oh, you know, it's going to be gridlock. Nothing's going to get done. But there was a, you know, there would be a bill here. There'd be a bill there. There'd be a bipartisan this. I think we have now achieved full gridlock on everything. William, your thoughts? Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. And yeah, because if you go back to the beginning of the Biden administration, uh, there was space to get things done, right? And it's sort of shocking when you look at all the, the legislative efforts that he was able to get through. But as time has gone by, it's, it's proven more difficult. And, and again, I think it's easy to say that the system is broke, but I think it's clear why the system is broke. You have a Republican party that's not interested in governing anymore, right? You've got a political party that is thinking about its leader, Donald Trump, and, and his electoral prospects and isn't isn't really engaged in, or at least a large chunk of it isn't engaged in, engaged in the process of trying to come up with meaningful legislation. I mean, I think the, you know, we were just talking about the, the, that border bill, that that is exactly the kind of thing that you would love to see come out of uh, of Washington, a real bipartisan piece of legislation where everybody gives up something, but it addresses a number of problems. That's, that's what we want out of, out of our politicians. And then what we're seeing is Trump comes out against it, which means Mike Johnson comes out against it, and that means it's dead on arrival, right? It's 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 sort of sad to, to look and think about where the political system is based on that sort of cynicism. Pat Brady, the former head of the Republican Party in Illinois, yesterday said, because um, we were talking about the future of the Republican Party, and he said, well, right now, there basically is no Republican Party. There is only the the party of Trump. That's everything else has been destroyed. There is nothing. There is nothing else. It is all Donald Trump all the time. And and that's it. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, th- I think it's spot on, right? So, like, so uh, political science is in political science research. There's a lot of study of democracy, and and looking at the United States, but also looking globally. And one thing that they find is the one mechanism that can keep populist demagogues out of power is a political party. It's not the voters. Like voters will vote for populists and demagogues all the time. We're really, really gullible. But political parties have the teeth to prevent that from happening. And when a political party passes on that opportunity, it's really hard to get it back, right? And what we saw is, is initially, you know, go all the way back to 2015, 2016, the Republican Party tried to stop Donald Trump. 
And when they were unable to, he just got total control of that party. And yeah, it, again, it is not a conventional political party. It is a political movement in support of Donald Trump. And that's, that's a really, really important thing to think about that. And that's what separates it from, you know, the Democratic Party, which is, is a conventional political party with lots of different views and perspectives and no one dominant voice. But the Republican Party is no longer that type of entity. I talked to Pat about this, about what would need to happen for the Republican Party of old or any Republican Party that's a real party to be restored. I'm going to ask you the same question. What has to happen to to bring the Republican Party back to, if not where it was before, at least some sort of semblance of a party that actually has a platform and has beliefs and sticks by them. I think the first step is you have to get rid of Donald Trump and not just not elect him, but he's got he's literally got to go away. Like, uh, you know, I always think about like after Napoleon and the, you know, Napoleon wreaked havoc on France. They sent him on an island, right? They just they basically said, Napoleon, you've got to go away. Right. And, and Trump has to go away. They've they, they got to put him on an island somewhere where he can't get back because um, he's, he's got to be removed from the party because anytime he's around or close, he's going to dominate the news cycle. He's going to dominate the process. So he's got to go away. And I think then you you have to start thinking about his supporters, the ideology that has infiltrated the Republican Party. This is not an easy thing to get rid of. Even if Trump goes away, that approach, that mentality. I mean, think about where the House is, where House Republicans on the Freedom Caucus, J.D. Vance. Like you've got to get all of that sort of ideology out of the party. Now, hopefully for the Republicans, a new candidate comes along, somebody who can galvanize the party, um, you know, and, and, and re-envision what that party looks like. And a lot of times individuals can do that. But I don't think it's going to be a quick process. I think the Republicans have have really dug themselves a hole that's going to take maybe generations to get out of. Pat didn't think that Donald Trump would be expunged from the Republican Party until we go through an election cycle and there are simply massive, massive losses by the party, massive wins by by the Democrats. I actually talked to another political strategist weeks ago who said much the same thing. And I was like, you know, well, you know, people, you know, do you sort of do you see it coming? And the first person who told me about this idea of we only get rid of Donald Trump if if there are if the Republican Party gets so devastated at the polls that they literally have no choice but to move on from him. And this person said they didn't think 2024 was going to be the year for that. But maybe maybe 2028 and maybe not until 2032. It seems like an awfully long time frame for us to wait for the Republican Party to right itself. What's your feel about the time frame we're looking at here for any kind of normality to return? I think that's a good time frame, and I might even kick it a little bit further down the road. No, because, no, no, yeah, no, no, I mean, no. <laughs> because, so, you know, you figure Donald Trump, you know, it, it, let's say he loses this this presidential election. He's still not going to go away. He's still going to do what he does, which is demonize the other. He's going to argue that the election was stolen. He will still, you know, be involved in politics, and he'll still play a role in the Republican Party. So it's, I, I really think it's, it's multiple elections down the road. He's got to be completely removed from all 
all levers of power. Um, and then you can begin the healing process, but that won't happen quickly because, you know, you've got a lot of individuals in Congress right now who are, who ran on Donald Trump ideology, right? And sort of the, the cult of Donald Trump. So I think it's going to be really difficult to, to, to remove that. Um, you know, there's this sense in the Republican Party of the demonization of the other. They've turned, uh, the Democratic Party into sort of evil and danger, right? And that's, that's hard to remove. That sense of hatred doesn't go quickly. Um, so yeah, I, I think it is, I, again, I think it's a long time coming before the Republican Party returns to something that I think is, is more similar to what we saw in the past. And I should say, that's really important. It's important to have two, at least two political parties sort of pushing each other. That's good for democracy. You know, you said something um, that reminded me, there was some woman uh, running for state office out west, and she was pretty far right, but she didn't get Donald Trump's endorsement. And she said, it doesn't matter because uh, the party, it's like MAGA is bigger than Donald Trump. MAGA is now the party. MAGA is who we are. And, you know, Donald Trump you know, even if he goes away, we will still be here. It sounds like exactly what you're talking about, that it's um, there's been such a a pervasive spread of these far right, m- m- mostly cruel ideas and attitudes and fear of the other, et cetera, and so forth. It, it does feel like you know, I worry that even if Donald Trump did have the major medical event that um, always hangs in the offing, that MAGA would take on a life of its own. That really, I, I, do you think it would take on a life of its own and just continue to blunder forward? Or would it, like a leaky balloon, get smaller and smaller and smaller until it finally faded? It's a great question because Donald Trump is a unique politician to sort of galvanize all that, all those feelings. But I think if, if we take a little deeper look at what's driving those feelings, a lot of it is fear of change. So the, the mega supporter, the Donald Trump supporter looks at the world around them and sees a world that's changing. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's becoming more diverse. There are more women in positions of power. We're, you know, we're, we're changing. There are, you know, fewer white Christians in control of the system, right? That's seen as a threat. And Donald, Donald Trump has been a wonderful vessel for sort of galvanizing all of that anger and that frustration. But even if Trump goes away, that sense of fear of change, the anger at at a country that's no longer the country that they once remembered, that's still going to be there. And there are likely going to be other politicians who are going to continue to run on that. And as we think, you know, moving forward, the country... Immigration is going to continue to be a challenge. You know, as climate change hits more immediately, you're going to have more people coming to the country. So these are long-standing systemic challenges uh, that I think MEGA will continue to seize on in terms of identity politics, the demonization of the other, right? Those things, I think, are going to linger for a long time, even if Trump steps away. I think, I think that you're right. I, I think that we are going to have to actively actively stamp out the last embers of this fire when Donald Trump finally exits the stage. But hopefully he's, you know, he's burned enough bridges. I mean, there was one graphic on social media where it's like everybody who had ever worked with him, Priebus, McMaster, Mnuchin, Cohn, Kelly, Mattis, Bill Barr, Roger Stone, Steve Bannon, Rex Tillerson. There were there were these quotes. They all hate him. They think he's an idiot. <laughs> 
You know, they think he's unfit. So maybe people like that will reclaim their damn party and we can go back to living in um, the regular world where we fight about issues and how to accomplish certain goals. Uh, William, thank you so much. It is always a pleasure to have you on this show. Um, thank you for joining us again today. Thanks so much, Jonah. I always enjoy it. Um, he is a political science professor at North Central College in Naperville, co-host of the podcast Politics Lab. And remember, uh, coming up on uh, Driving at Home with Patty Vasquez, she is going to be talking to Mike Quigley, who is on, who is one of the people uh, caucusing this committee on Ukraine and in charge of it. And he's got to be beside himself today. That's going to do it for me. I will see you tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Until then, have a great evening. Stay safe, my friends. Good night.